0: Night from 8 to 10 on WMU 885.
1: Hi, I'm Rachel Martin from NPR. Thank you to everyone who became a new member in 2020. This station relies on
2: donations from listeners just like you. We're honored and grateful to have your support.
3: Hey, thank you for indulging in
0: some self-care by joining us here on WAMU and online. Here's wishing you joy, comfort, and perseverance
4: in the new year. I'm Jeffrey James, and this is WAMU Washington. NHD at 88.5 and at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, where it's 7 o'clock. It's Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WNU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz. Happy New Year. And as much as we're looking forward to a brand new year, and boy are we ever looking forward to a brand new year, we're going to look back a little bit, saluting a very special Amelia Earhart anniversary with a highly relevant word from the great feminist and aviator herself. Plus Gunsmoke, Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life, Mickey Spillane's That Hammer Guy, Dragnet, Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons, bob bailey in let george do it and dispatches from african-american soldiers in combat on new world to coming so relax the holidays are over don't think about last week it's gone and just postpone worrying about the one to come sit back wake up your imagination and spend a while here on your sunday night oasis the big broadcast I bet it's been over a year since I walked into a bank and cashed a check. Maybe that's why I welcomed this adventure called The Double Exposure Matter, an episode from CBS, April 3rd, 1960, and the series, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar.
5: Johnny Dollar. Mm-hmm. This is Frederick Keeley at Masters Insurance and Trust Company. How are you,
6: Mr. Keeley? I, I'm well, fine, thank you, but that's rather beside the point. I have a bit of a problem, Mr. Dollar. are not we
5: all? Yeah. Beg your pardon? Nothing, sir. Just go on, please.
6: But, Mr. Dollar, one of our claimants, that is to say the beneficiary of a small insurance policy, apparently never received the check for $3,000 we sent him.
5: I'm afraid I don't get it, Mr. Keeley. Why call on me? What do you mean, sir? Well, all you have to do
6: is call the bank, stop payment on that check, and issue another.
5: I am afraid not, sir. Why not? I said apparently never received it. I use that word advisedly. Well? Because it so happens the check we sent him has been cashed. Oh. Yes, properly endorsed and apparently cashed by the claimant, the beneficiary himself. Apparently again. Yes, and again, I use the word advisedly.
6: Well, then it kind of means one of two things. Either this beneficiary is trying to collect the money twice, or somebody else got to that check first. In which case, we have a little matter of forgery on our
5: hands. Which, of course, should exact the fullest possible penalty of the law. Will you look into
6: it for us? Sure, Mr. Keeley, why not?
5: CBS Radio brings you Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly,
7: Johnny Dollar.
6: account submitted by special investigator johnny dollar for the masters insurance and trust company home
5: office hartford connecticut following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the double exposure matter expense account item one $1.20 20 for a cab to Keeley's office on the 10th floor of the star record building he's a man of about 60 i'd say short stout and uh, rather pompous in his manner Or maybe self-important is more like it. No, I'm sure you realize as well as I do that a $3,000 claim is relatively
6: small. Relatively unimportant. I use that word advisedly.
5: That means I can't expect much of a commission. (laughs) Huh? What's that? Uh, Nothing, sir. Go ahead, please.
6: Yes. Uh, The fact remains
5: that if the claimant, the beneficiary, thinks he can get away with collecting price on the policy, seems to me he'd have to be pretty stupid to try a thing like that. Oh, you're right. You're entirely right, sir. Exactly the way I feel about it. And Peter Upman is not a stupid man, so far as I have been able to determine. Upman? The beneficiary. Oh. In other words, it becomes evident, and I use that word advisedly, that someone else got hold of that check, endorsed it with Peter Upman's name, signed the receipt, of course, and, uh, shall we say, left for parts unknown. In other words, we are faced with a case of forgery. Yeah, I uh, think I suggested something of that sort. Oh, huh? uh, well, yes, yes, of course you did. And forgery is a serious matter, sir. I'll go along with you on that. Not only in this particular instance because of a relatively small amount involved, and I use that term advisedly, but because it could lead to other attempts where perhaps much larger amounts could be involved. So you want me to see if I can run down this forger for you? No. No? Why do you say that? If we are to believe the People's National Bank over in Milford... Milford, Connecticut? That's right. If we are to believe them, the personnel concerned, their actual photographic record of the transaction, there was no forgery. But I thought you just finished saying... What's that? Mr. Dollar, according to them, and I have no reason to doubt them in the least, Peter Upman himself appeared, endorsed that check, cashed it, and left with the money. However, Uh I have here a properly signed deposition to the effect that Upman not only never cashed that check that he never saw it
8: oh no
5: this doesn't make sense we have no reason whatsoever to question the validity of this deposition you're sure of that i am certain of it but but you can't <clears throat> be that is why i have called upon you somehow mr dollar you must bring the criminal whoever he is to justice
6: will you do it sir well yeah sure why not
5: and i use that term advised <laughs> Naturally, my first move was to drive on down to Milford. On the expense account, that rings up item two, five and a quarter for a tank full of gas for my own car. The People's National Bank was closed for the day, so I registered at the Milford Arms, ate some dinner, that's item three, another five and a quarter. That is including a couple of drinks beforehand. Then I drove over to the address of Mr. Peter Upman. Pete, living alone in a small apartment on East Willow Drive, turned out to be about uh, 33. He was tall, husky, good-looking. A football type with a big shock of red hair. Very nervous, though. The kind who doesn't stay put anywhere for very long. Yeah, sure. Come in, darling. Sit down. Sit down. Okay. How about if I
9: pour us a drink or something? How about it? No,
5: no thanks, Uppman.
9: Upman? Sure you don't mean Mr. Upman? (laughs) Now, don't be so formal. Just call me Pete. Sure you couldn't do with a little drink just to sort of celebrate. How about it,
5: huh? Celebrate what? Celebrate what? You said the insurance company, didn't you? That's right. Then
10: produce, man, produce. Just don't keep me hanging here. Only I'll sit down, too. Come on, man, come on, let's have it,
5: huh? What are you talking about? The check, what else? Old Aunt Lizzie's insurance. Don't tell me you came all the way down here from Hartford without bringing me another check for all that lovely money, that three grand, now don't tell me that. Oh, another check, huh?
10: Why, sure, what else?
5: (laughs) Hey, now, look what I mean. Yeah. Now, what do you mean, Pete? I mean another one to take the place of the one the company was supposed to send me, but I never got it, that's what I mean. They said they sent it to me, but, man, I never saw it. Oh, they sent it all right, and they got a receipt for it. That's what they say, man. That's what they've been saying to me ever since I put on that claim for it. Ah, oh, look. Maybe the upmans are kind of funny about some things, but they aren't liars, see? And I'm telling you, I never got that check. Pete, that check was... You don't believe me? You asked that lawyer, that Alfred R. Price. He took my statement and made me swear to so it. So I And understand. I don't swear to something unless it's true, see? That's all very swear well, but... Swear to something isn't true is a one-way trip to the jailhouse. A man, that's not for me. I'm beginning to wonder. Sure,
9: that's the fastest way to get yourself into trouble, but...
11: Uh, look,
5: Dollar. You be careful what you say. Yeah. I'm a nervous man, doll, and Sometimes I got a pretty quick temper. And if somebody's trying to pull a fast one on me, well, don't try it. I don't care who you are. Just don't try it, dollar. Maybe it wouldn't be very healthy for you. See what I mean? Um, is that supposed to be a warning, Pete? Warning? No. No, man, I don't fool around. That's a threat. <laughs> And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Trying to reason with Peter Upman didn't work. He was much too anxious to use his fists. And from the looks of him, he might have done very well with them. He maintained he'd never received the insurance check. That he wanted the money, wanted it fast, and that's all there was to it. That I had my choice of getting it for him or else. He made it plain that if I didn't like his attitude, he'd be perfectly willing to pound some sense into my head. So, why stick my neck out Well, I figured I could get all the information I needed from the lawyer, Mr. Alfred
6: R. Price? And Price, living in a lonely home on the north side of town, was somewhat different from his hot-tempered young client.
9: I'm I'm afraid you just have to forgive Peter his
5: somewhat belligerent attitude. He comes from a very wealthy family over in New Haven. I was their attorney for many years. They tried to spoil him, make him the same lazy,
0: indolent sort that his sister and his two brothers are.
5: One of those things, huh? But Peter would have none
6: of it. He was determined to make something of himself entirely on his own. I see. As a result of his stubbornness, his defiance, and his father's unreasonable attitude,
0: well,
12: his father blandly told him he was cutting him off about a penny. Well, how do the other
5: kids feel about him?
12: <laughs> There's no love for him, believe me.
5: But uh, how's he made
12: out?
0: Very well, Mr. Duller.
5: He owns a little electronic shop. More
0: important, he's the only member of the family. Who has any real knowledge of the value of money,
5: simply because he's the only one who's going to work for it. Which explains, I suppose, why he's so anxious to get his hands on the 3,000 insurance that his aunt left.
12: Oh, he can use it, too.
5: That is, if he hasn't already got it and is simply trying to bluff his way into another three grand.
9: No, don't you believe it, Mr. Dollar. Peter would no more, could no more think of
5: such a thing. are oh, you seem pretty sure of that. Yeah, well, I've known him since the day he was born. I have... Liked him in spite of his hot temper. And I'm absolutely certain he would never attempt anything out of line. Well, you're pretty convincing, Mr. Price. Well, after all, I'm a lawyer, Mr. Dollar. But the fact remains the company sent him a check. It was properly endorsed. The money was paid out. But not to him. Well, how can you be
0: sure? Because he said it wasn't.
5: And that's good enough for me. But in that case... Have you talked to the people at the bank, to the teller who made the payment? No, no, I haven't. Have you seen the photograph of the actual transaction as it took place? See, so you're the second one to mention such a photograph.
9: Uh, very ingenious device there at that bank. I suggest the first thing in the morning you go down there, see it, talk with the President, Mr. Oliver, and then see what you think.
5: So first thing in the morning I was at the bank talking with Mr. Barton Winfield Oliver,
12: the President. Yes, a very ingenious device, Mr. Dollar, when it works properly. Uh, What do you mean by that, Mr. Oliver? It's called a photo register. One of the very first models to be installed in a place of business. Actually, it was an experimental model. Just what is it? What does it do? Comparable devices, much improved, of course, are in use throughout the whole country now. What does it do, sir? It automatically takes a picture of everyone who steps up in front of the teller's cage. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of such things. Of course. Yeah, aren't
5: they used in a lot of supermarkets, places like that, to make a photographic record of people who cash checks in them?
12: Yes. And as a result, the incidents of bad checks in those places? (laughs) Why, they're almost a thing of the past. All this means that you have a picture of the man who cashed that insurance check. Uh, Well, uh, yes, yes, I have.
6: May I see it, please? Well, uh, yes. Because if it is a picture of young Peter Upman, I don't care what his
12: lawyer says. Here you are, Donna.
5: This is photographic proof it was he who... Who? Huh? Uh, yes. Oh, now,
7: wait, wait a minute. Well, that was an you early... You
12: say this is the best that fancy machine of yours can do? It was an experimental model. Why, this could look like almost anybody. In the beginning, it was very good. Made very clear pictures. Well, it certainly doesn't anymore. But only the head cashier, and I know that. Huh? The general public don't. They think it operates as well as ever. So it serves its purpose. Yeah? How? Because anyone thinking of trying anything is
6: scared by it. Oh, great, great. Then this photo doesn't really mean a thing. Oh, sure, in a way, it does look somewhat like Peter Upman. Same
5: bill, same general sort of face, even the same shock of hair. But it's so blurred, so
12: indistinct, like a double exposure. I, uh, yes, yes, I know. But when Mrs. Eberhardt says that it was Peter... Uh, who's uh, Mrs. Eberhardt? She's one of our oldest, most trusted employees. The teller who waited on him. Oh, let me talk to her, please. Certainly. Oh, uh, Mrs. Eberhardt. Will you close your cage for a moment and come here, please?
13: That is me, Mr. Oliver.
12: That's the one? It is. She's been with the bank much longer than even I have, almost from the beginning. She knows more about the people here in... Mr. Dollar, what does this mean?
5: I casually pulled my gun out of its holster, and I held it casually in front of my chest, waiting for Mrs. Eberhardt to come. Because I'd had a real good look at her when she turned to answer Mr. Oliver. And suddenly, I began to see things a lot more clearly. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Double Exposure Matter. Just take it easy, Mr. Oliver, and don't mention it to her when she comes over here. But good heavens, man. Wait now, wait now. Here she comes. Uh,
14: yes, Mr.
13: Oliver, you wish to... Oh, oh, I'm so
6: sorry, Walter. Okay, okay, Abby, only I'm not Waller, I'm Jim. Oh,
13: yes, of course, Jimmy.
6: Right
12: over here, Mrs. Everett. Oh,
13: I know, Mr. Oliver, I can Oh, dear, these chairs are all
12: over the place. Abby, uh, I want you to meet my friend, Mr. Johnny Dollar. Oh,
13: Mr. Jarrett. Oh, oh, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to bump into you, ah, Mr. I'm That's all right, am right. But how do you do? Oh, and I see you smoke a pipe, too, just like Mr. Oliver does.
6: Yeah, oh, you'd better take a real close look at this, Mrs. Everhart. What? The way you look real close at all the money you handle there at the counter, at the deposit slips and so forth.
5: A real close look, huh?
13: But, uh, Oh, why, it's a pistol. Yeah. But good heavens.
5: How long since you've had a new prescription for those glasses of
12: yours? Oh,
13: look here, young man. If this is a whole. How long? Shall I cry for help, Mr. Oliver? No,
12: no. better answer my question.
13: Young man, I don't see that it's any of your business. I thought so. And if you're here in the bank for any nefarious.
5: And this is the person who identified Peter Upland for you. Now, look here, Dollar. Yes.
13: You look here, young man.
5: Look, huh? That's right. Mr. Oliver. Hasn't this bank of yours got a nice, generous pension plan for an old and faithful employee who is blind as a bat? <gasps> oh,
15: thank
5: you. Item
6: four, ten cents for telephone call to the lawyer, Mr. Price. Item five, a buck and a half for a leisurely lunch at the hotel. After which I wandered around the town a bit then drove on over to the lawyer's office. I uh,
5: tried to call you at the hotel, Mr. Dollar, but they told me you'd left. Yeah, I no, I was out uh, taking a little walk. <coughs> Look here. Uh, do you think these will be of any help to you? Who knows, but I certainly hope so. Now, this is Janet Upman. I believe she's about
6: 31 now. Mm. Oh, we oui. Quite a dish. Yes, yeah, she's <laughs> quite a dish. I bet that makes set her back a lot of money. Now, uh, this is Edward, Peter's older brother. Not very bright. Kind of bald, isn't he? But there is a family resemblance. And this is Peter. Oh, no, 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 that's Paul. A couple of years younger than Peter.
5: Said they resent. Uh, they dislike Peter, didn't you? Yes, I did. Because he had the guts to go out on his own, huh? Mm, partially, perhaps. Because he didn't take a hunk of the family fortune? Well, that wouldn't make sense. Uh, now, wait. Uh, you mean I... Oh, uh, didn't I tell
6: you of the hidden bequest? The what? Peter never knew about it, but the others always have. Known about what? Well, because of the way Peter had renounced his family, his father wanted to punish him. By cutting him off without a son. So he said... But in a late cottage, he'll do his will. Peter will get some money, huh? Over a million, Mr. Dollar, in a few months, when he's 35. I see. Provided he keeps out of any serious trouble. Uh, The money the others were left. Millions, Mr. Dollar. I'll bet they've been going through it like a tornado. Yes, I'm afraid so. All right, then, Mr. Price, if
5: I can bluff my way with this picture from the bank, and if you're any kind of an actor, well, let's get busy. (music)
6: I telephoned to Peter, told him to come over. Mr. Price called the others. Uh, They didn't care particularly about seeing Peter again, but Price told them some of the as-yet-undistributed money was at stake, and they quickly changed their mind. So, about an hour and a half
5: later, there was a gathering of the Upman clan there at the office of the old attorney.
9: Now, look,
5: Dollar, Mr. Price says you're okay and all that, but I still don't like your company's stall on the insurance payment. Just...
6: Keep your shirt on, huh, Pete? And another thing, I didn't like your attitude when you came to see now, me. Now, look, look, you may be a little bigger than I am, but I've decided you'd be very foolish if you tried to take me on. Oh, yeah? It might even cost you a million bucks.
9: Well, all I care about is Aunt Lizzie's 3000 Okay,
6: okay, just take it easy, huh? Take
9: it easy? You say that to a Oh, redhead. then
6: shut up.
5: Okay, now, all of you, listen to me.
1: Yes, Johnny.
5: I'm sure you all know that Pete here inherited a few thousand dollars from his Aunt uh, Elizabeth, I guess it is.
1: Yes, and we've heard about
16: how he's tried to collect it twice over. Well, if you ask me, Johnny... Thank
5: you, Janet, but I'm not asking you. Well, if you ask me, Pete ought to be locked up for trying such a silly, childish thing. Yeah? Paul, with all the time in the world on your hands, it was really easy for you to pick up that insurance check over where Pete lives while he was at work,
6: wasn't it? What's that? I what? And forging a signature? Well, after all, you're his own brother. Just a minute, please. And there is the bank. Why, dear old, half-blind Mrs.
5: Eberhardt couldn't tell which was which. Now, look here, Donald. But a little machine put the finger on you, Paul. Oh, absurd. Yeah, a little device at the bank that photographs everybody who goes up to a teller's cage. Dolly, you mean that... Oh,
13: now, Johnny, you've been taken in. Have I? That old thing is just a bluff. It hasn't worked right in years.
6: Oh, what makes you think that?
16: I know, because the cashier is a, well, a boyfriend of mine.
6: Oh, that bank had better check its books. What? He didn't tell you it's been fixed recently? Fixed?
5: No,
17: no, he didn't. I, I mean,
5: Paul... Now, wait a minute. I'd like to see the picture it took
6: of you, Paul, collecting that money. Yeah. Here, Mr. Price, see what you think. Hmm. Mine, yes, Mr. Dollar. It's about as clear as it can okay, possibly be. Okay, Paul, you dirty... No. no, stop him. Somebody stop me oh, here. Not you, Paul. Anybody
10: else
7: oh, Good heavens, Mr. Dollar. Peter will
6: kill him. Oh, I doubt it, Mr. Price. Can you think of a better way for justice to be done? No. Yeah, Peter paid Paul on this one. But I mean, royally. And I must confess, it did my heart good to watch him. And Pete, bless his fighting Irish heart, yep, he'll be a millionaire one of these days. He's earned it. Expense account total, including hotel and food, $17.20. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
5: Here is our star to tell you about next week's story.
6: Next week, a story of a deadly swamp and four dedicated killers. Their intended victim? Well, join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
12: truly, Johnny Dollar,
5: starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Marvin Miller, Peter Leeds, Jack Moyles, Ralph Moody, Bartlett Robinson, Eleanor Audley, and Sandra Gould. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is John Wall speaking.
4: The question is, if there'd been an Americans with Disabilities Act back then, would that old bank teller... Never mind. That was the Double Exposure Matter, an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, from the spring of 1960. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Actually, my mentioning the pre-ADA era is not a bad lead-in to the You Bet Your Life show we're about to hear, It was a different time, and you should be aware that among Groucho's guests, there's a pediatrician who advocates spanking kids. And there's more than a little of the common sexism of the period, with wolf whistles from the audience and jokes from Groucho when a beautiful fashion model appears as a contestant. Another player is an artist by the name of M.A.K. Feldsberg. His seascape and landscape paintings are still around, And we have a link to some of them on our Facebook page. They're not bad at all. With references to football great Amos Alonzo Stagg, the essay A Message to Garcia, the band leader Cab Calloway, and the then still skinny crooner Frank Sinatra, it's the February 8th, 1950 edition of NBC's You Bet Your Life. Ladies and gentlemen, the secret word tonight is
11: bread. B-R-E-A-D. Really? You bet your life.
5: The DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America present Groucho Marx in You Bet Your Life, the comedy quiz series produced and transcribed from Hollywood.
18: And here he is, the one, the only. Groucho! Is that fool still around? Oh, that's me, Groucho Marx! <laughs> Thank you. Well, here I am again with $2,500 for one of our couples tonight. It's a lot of money. George Feniman, who's first to try for it? We
7: invited some pediatricians to the show tonight, and just before we went on the air, we selected Dr. Alonzo Kant. His partner is a young mother from the audience. This is Christine Garcia. Folks,
18: meet Groucho Marx. Welcome, kids, to You Bet Your Life. And if one of you says the secret word, he wins $100 immediately. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. A young mother and a pediatrician. Uh, wh- which one is the young mother?
19: I am. <laughs>
18: <laughs> you, you are? Congratulations. Mrs. Uh, Christine Garcia, huh? Yes. You know that. Uh, you're named after a 10-cent cigar. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, I Well, where are you from? I'll call you Christine, huh?
20: Okay.
18: i uh, call uh, me Garcia,
20: huh?
18: Um, <laughs> Later I'm on, I'll give you a message from Garcia.
20: <laughs>
18: where are you from, Christine?
19: Albuquerque, New Mexico.
18: And Mr. Alonzo Stagg, uh, Cass, huh? <laughs> what, what's your hometown? Los Angeles. And Mr. Cass, how long have you two been married? Huh? I'm a pediatrician. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't care what your religion is, just as long as you're happy. Huh?
20: <laughs> now then, how long have
18: you two been married?
20: Huh? <laughs> she's not my wife. I'll
18: find time to desert her right after she has a child. Huh? <laughs> how old are you, Christine? 19. Nin- Nineteen? Mm-hmm. Well, you're certainly well-preserved, huh?
20: <laughs> You
18: don't look a day over eighteen. <laughs> How long have you been a mother?
19: Uh, my baby is eight months old.
18: Uh, Mr. Uh, Cass, <laughs> uh, what did you say your vocation was? And don't tell me the last two weeks in August, huh? It's a very old joke, huh? I'm so old I didn't even get a laugh, huh? What is your vocation? And don't tell me the last two weeks in August, huh? <laughs> Maybe the month is wrong. I'll try July
20: next <laughs> <laughs> You're a
18: pediatrician, huh? That's right. Is that so? How long have you been a bicycle rider?
20: <laughs> <laughs> I don't
18: ride bicycles. I take care of babies. Oh, you are a baby doctor, huh? Oh, I thought a baby doctor'd be about three years old. <laughs> <laughs> like a baby elephant, huh?
20: <laughs> well, that shows you, huh? You don't
18: mind if I call you doctor, you uh
20: well, uh uh
7: most uh
18: Doctors like to be called just Doctor or, or Al. Oh, I couldn't call well, my Doctor Al. His name is Henry. Yeah?
20: <laughs>
18: you want me to call you Doctor or uh, Al or what? Well, you use your own judgment. That's perfectly all right. Okay. Well, uh, tell me, Josephine, how long...
20: <laughs> you brought that on
18: yourself, Doctor. <laughs> Do you have any little patients of your own at home? Yes, I have six children. They're not patients. They're not your (laughs) patients, Smart kids, they don't trust their old man. (laughs) Why why is that? Why aren't they your uh, victims? Well patients. It's not considered ethical to take care of your own family. In addition to that, it'd be kind of difficult collecting the bill, wouldn't it? (laughs) How old is your husband, uh, Mrs. Garcia? Thank uh, Is he shaving yet?
20: Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
18: what sort of work does he do?
19: He's an upholster.
18: Uh, how did you meet him?
19: I met him at a dance. My father introduced him to me.
18: What do you mean, your father introduced you? Uh... Well, he
19: knew him.
18: Oh, he knew him. And, uh, and... did you evince uh, a desire to meet this man? Or just, uh... Oh, no. Did your father drag over everybody at a dance? i <laughs> will say, here's another specimen. Try this one. Huh? <laughs>
20: no.
19: No. <laughs>
18: What, what is the baby's name, Christine?
19: John Joseph.
18: John Joseph. Mm-hmm. Uh, any uh, reason why you chose that name?
19: Well, it's John is my husband's first name, and Joseph is my father's name.
18: Mm-hmm. He gets uh, he gets an assist for dragging him over that dam. <laughs> <laughs> how, how much did your baby weigh when it was born, Christine? Six
19: pounds, eight ounces.
18: And what does it weigh now?
19: Twenty-two pounds.
18: Gained a lot of weight, didn't he? Huh? Well,
19: they're supposed to double their weight in six months.
18: At that rate, time the kid is 21, he'd weigh about
20: 2,300 pounds. <laughs> Doc, uh,
18: I mean, Croker, is uh,
20: is,
18: is Christine uh, doing the right thing? Uh? Well, uh, the first job of a baby is to gain weight and uh, uh, keep its strength up. In mm-hmm. some cases, that's the last job the bum ever has. Huh? <laughs> How much is your pride and joy eating a day, Christine?
19: Besides baby food, uh, four bottles.
18: Eat four bottles a day?
20: <laughs> That's a
18: pretty hearty kid, you know. Uh, he doesn't
20: know. Uh,
18: when you bite him, isn't there danger of flying glass?
20: <laughs> I suppose he just lies there
18: on his back and blows martini bubbles. Right?
20: <laughs>
18: what did you put in his bottle, Christine? Uh,
19: his formula, about 160 calories.
18: What the calorie? Is that any relation to cab calorie? <laughs>
19: <laughs> well, that's something in food, uh, to make the baby big and strong.
18: You better stick to a plain diet for that kid, huh? <laughs> Every day, wholesome food like bottles and glasses. <laughs> now, Pablo and Pete, suppose you tell them. This...
20: <laughs> suppose
18: you tell this little mother what a calorie is. Well, a calorie is the amount of heat that it takes to heat a cubic centimeter of water through one degree. Well, if your kid can swallow that, he has a cast-iron stomach. (laughs) Doc, what kind of a pediatrician are you? Well, I belong to the Blue Shield. What's that? What's the Blue Shield? Blue Shield's a, a national organization organized by the doctors. It's a voluntary medical insurance plan where the people pay a certain amount each month then they're taken care of by any doctor that they choose. Well, is it like in England? Can they get glasses and toupees and things like that? Well, I don't dispense glasses and toupees. I suppose they'd have to pay. Have for you got you know an old I... toupee you're not uh... <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <coughs> well, what do you do as a pediatrician?
7: Well, I uh, take care of the babies right from birth and uh, watch the development and advise the mothers how to uh, feed their babies
18: and uh, see that they're raised, I hope, into being good citizens. Does the mother swallow all this hoopla? No. <laughs> Tell me, Christine, is uh, your pediatrician do all this work on your baby?
19: Well, so far, he's given him a couple of shots.
18: You mean he shot him?
20: <laughs>
19: well,
18: we've all got to go sometime. Why'd he shoot him in the head? No, in the arms. <laughs> I'm, I'm still getting those, huh? <laughs> glad to hear that. He just winged him, in other words. Right? <laughs> now, Doc, as long as you're here, would you mind if I steal some free advice? No. Go ahead. I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, and she loves candy. Should Should I give it her? Why, of course. How much? Okay. Well, she can have all she wants, as a matter of fact. All she wants? Yeah. Isn't it bad for the teeth? Or? No. Is that so? I'm glad my kid can't hear this.
20: Right? <laughs>
18: and she doesn't like to drink her orange juice in the morning. What, what should I do about that? Well, you could try drinking it yourself. <laughs> By the time I get to her, it's pretty sloppy, huh? <laughs> and during the night, she likes to get up out of bed every few hours. So how can I make her sleep? Try thanking her. Every night, slugging her? I don't think it would last very long if you slug her once or twice. I don't think I would, either. <laughs>
20: well,
18: that's it. Uh, you're pretty tough with babies, <laughs> huh? Give them a lot of candy, snatch away their orange juice, and slug them, huh? <laughs> Can't wait till I get home with that baseball bat, huh? <laughs> well, in, in spite of my kidding, Doc, I'm sure you pediatricians are contributing a great deal to the health of the community. Now, in just one minute, you're going to try for the DeSoto Plymouth $2,500 question.
6: Every
5: DeSoto Plymouth dealer has an assignment that means service to you. A mission to deal with you fairly and squarely, whether it be for a new car, a used car, or a simple repair job. Friends, those few simple words stand for a whole way of doing business. A business policy, you might call it, by which more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers across the entire country have made a reputation which, frankly, is the envy of many other folks in the automotive business, or in any business, for that matter. These dealers realize that it's good business sense to treat customers right. To make courtesy an important part of the day's work of all their employees. To tackle any job, no matter how small, with an honest desire to please you. Now, if that's the kind of place you like to do business with, drive in to any authorized DeSoto Plymouth dealers.
18: Let's see if a young mother and a pediatrician will get the chance at the $2,500. Send them and tell them the rules.
5: Each of our three couples has $20. They bet as much of that 20 as they want on each of four questions. The couple that earns the most money gets a chance at the DeSoto Plymouth $2,500 question at the end of the
18: show. Our other two couples are in a waiting room off stage, so they don't know what's happening out here. Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. You selected songs with beverages in the title. Is that right? Here's your first question. You have $20. How much are you going to try and talk right into the microphone? $10. What's the name of this song? Play, Jerry.
20: Roll out the barrel. <laughs> and they're
18: on their way. They have $30, Roscoe. Well, now you got $30. Remember, you're going for $2,500 tonight. How much of the $30 will you try? $20 this $20. Let's see if you can identify this one. <laughs>
20: Tea for two. D for two. They're
18: climbing now. They have $50. All right, you have $50. How much of the 50 will you bet? 40. 40. Give me the title of this song with a beverage in the title. Music, please. Cream, in my, coffee.
19: cream in
20: my coffee. Cream my coffee.
18: You're the cream of my coffee at 70 cents a pound. Now, here's the... <laughs> <laughs> they have $90, dollars $90. Rockwell. They wouldn't have written that song today. Is your last chance to beat the other couple. Uh, how much of the $90 are you going to try? $20. $20. All right. Oh, this song is by Hoagy Carmichael. It's got a beverage in the title. Okay.
20: Buttermilk oh, Buttermilk Sky. Old Buttermilk Sky. And they
18: wind up with $110. <laughs> Thanks, and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. Now, don't sneak off. You might still be high for the night and get the chance at the $2,500 question.
5: Groucho, the secret word is still bread. Perhaps our next couple will say it. Just before we went on the air, our studio audience
18: selected a shoemaker and a housewife. And here they are, Mr. Marvin Babb and Mrs. Harriet Mosley meet Groucho Mark. Welcome, folks, to You Bet Your Life. And if one of you says the secret word, he wins $100 in cash instantly. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. Mrs. Mosley, is that right? Right. Where are you from, Mrs. Mosley? Sioux
21: City, Iowa, originally.
18: Sioux City, huh? Mr. Babb, uh, who do you work for?
22: For Joe Zinke.
18: Are you married, Mr. Babb? Yes. Does your wife think you're a good shoemaker? Oh, well, naturally. Probably thinks you're a fine fellow to boot, too, huh? <laughs> Has she ever done that?
22: She's tried a few times.
18: Do you have any little hides at home that need tanning?
22: <laughs> <laughs> Get one.
18: Get one, huh? How long have, have you been married, Mrs. Mosley?
21: Almost 14 years.
18: Well, you don't look at it. Thank I you, sir. Look like a recent bride.
21: I'm almost old enough to be your mother, Albert.
20: <laughs>
18: I I would consider that very seriously, Any uh,
21: Anytime, Mr. Marks, you come out and join
18: the brood. <laughs> well, if I have to be part of a brood, let's it. Uh-huh.
20: <laughs> I want to do my
18: own brooding. Now do uh,
20: <laughs>
18: you, you have children? I'll yes, call sir. you Harriet, huh? Thank
20: you.
21: Yes, I have children. What are
18: their ages? Twelve and
21: eight. And six and four. Bingo. I'm
18: sorry. I uh, I thought you called my number. How did you meet your husband, Harriet? Feet first. Feet first?
21: Yes, sir. He was stuck in a transom. Was it your transom? No, sir. Would you he mind clarifying to... that? Well, he was trying to get into his own hotel room, the hard way, I guess. He started through, and the transom had closed on him, and he couldn't get out. He couldn't get in.
18: Are you sure that was his room? Yes,
20: I am.
21: Because he was making these strange noises, that's uh, the first thing that drew my attention to him. And uh, well, it's not imagine. a
18: customary position, I think.
21: No. <laughs> it certainly isn't. And he said, well, I have a key in my pocket. That seemed awfully silly, but... Just a
18: moment, Harriet, uh, just a moment.
21: Huh? Why
18: was he going in through the transom if he had a key in his pocket? Mr.
21: Marks, he's never told me. I honestly don't
18: know. That's true. And he still... I have my own
21: ideas, but...
18: uh, They're not your own ideas. They're mine, too. (laughs) (laughs)
20: Now,
18: Shoemaker, I'll I'll just call you Cobbler, huh? Uh, We don't like to be
22: called that. That's more of a butcher.
18: Uh, Well, some of my shoes have been butchered up pretty well. (laughs) So what specifically do you do? uh,
22: I, uh... Repair shoes, put on new soles, new heels, make repairs in the uppers. You
18: repair uppers, you mean
20: <laughs>
18: you mean you're also a dentist? No, I just make like
20: shoes.
18: Huh? Oh, now what's the uh <laughs> used to be an old joke about a fellow's patent leather shoes, he's leather on top and his bare feet with patent on the ground? <laughs> That belonged to Moran and Mac, the two black crows. And, and they can have it, I might add.
20: Uh,
18: how'd you get to be a shoemaker? Did you study at Oxford?
22: No.
20: <laughs>
18: That's a kind of a joke, you see. Which shoes are harder? Do you ever sing Shoo Shoo Baby when you're uh, working? No, I guess not. <laughs> Which shoes are harder to repair, men's or, or women's?
22: No, women's shoes are much harder to repair. Why? Why is it? Well, because of all those fantastic designs and styling.
18: So why why do they wear such fantastic styles? Uh, Harriet, uh, maybe you can answer that. Why do they wear such
21: why peculiar those, styles? that uh, get the men to notice their
18: feet. Wouldn't they do better attracting attention if they walked around barefoot? <laughs> <laughs>
20: well,
18: if you really want to stop traffic, try going without, uh, well, without looking carefully before you cross <laughs> the street.
20: <huh>? <laughs>
18: <laughs> what do they put in cheap shoes that make them wear out?
22: Well, they put a lot of belly leather in the soles and the insoles.
18: What's belly leather?
22: Well, (laughs) well, that's uh, the part of the hide that is the covering for the animal's belly.
18: And then you put... What's the matter with that? Why isn't that just as good as
22: any other part? Well, that's nice for the cow, but it don't work very good in shoes.
18: (laughs) (laughs) You mean they just just can't stomach that kind of leather? Suppose I brought some shoes into your shop and they were in pretty bad shape. Exactly. What would you do to them?
22: They were really knocked around, beat up, and ripped, rattled, and run down the heels. I'd start put on a new welt, new heels, new heel bases.
18: you do all really that, make them,
22: huh? Really make them look like a new pair of shoes.
18: Seems hardly worthwhile to go to all that trouble. I'm talking about horseshoes. <laughs> now, can you tell anything about a person just by looking at a pair of shoes? Yes. Well, uh, what can you tell?
22: Give us an example. Well, you can tell whether he's a man or a woman.
18: (laughs) (laughs) Shoemaker, stick to your last. (laughs) How would you like it if I came down to your shop and tied all the shoelaces together?
20: (laughs) Well, I must say, I
18: learned a lot about shoe repairing here tonight. Now, you're going to play your bet your life for $2,500. You beat our other couples, and you'll get a chance at the big question later. I can't tell you how much the first couple won, but Fenneman is offstage to remind our listeners.
5: The pediatrician and the young mother earned $110.
18: Here we go. Let's see how high I can build you $20. You selected leaders in our government as your category. Now, here's your first question. You have $20. How much are you going to try?
22: Ten.
18: Who is vice president of the United States?
22: Barkley.
18: Alvin Barkley is right.
20: We're
18: on our way with $30, Groucho. Remember, you're going for $2,500 tonight. How much of the $30 will you try? Twenty. Who is the chief justice of the United States? Douglas? No, I am sorry. It's, it's Fred Benson. Oh, dear. Now they have ten dollars. Well, now yeah. you've got ten dollars. Here's your third question. How much of the ten will you try? I bet the ten. <laughs> Who's the senior senator from Ohio? His father was a president. Taft. Senator Taft is correct. <laughs> and they're on their way again. They have twenty dollars. Now you've got twenty. Here's your last chance to be the other couple. How much of the twenty will you bet? Twenty. Who's the Secretary of State? Dean Atkinson. Dean Atkinson is correct. And they wind up with forty dollars. Thanks and good luck from the DeSoto Plymouth dealers. Now, in a moment, we'll know who's going to earn the chance at the $2,500 question. George, who's ahead so far? The pediatrician and the young mother are leading with $110. And the secret word is still bread. We invited a number
5: of models to the program tonight, and just before we went on the air, our studio audience chose Dorothy Green. Her partner is Mr. M.A.K. Feldsberg, an artist. And here they are,
18: folks. Meet your mark.: Welcome, kids, for the DeSoto Plymouth dealers, including that whistle. And if one of you says the secret word, he wins $100 instantly. It's a common word, something you'll find around the house. Miss Dorothy uh, Green, is that right?
16: That's correct.
18: You're, you're the model, and a very, very lovely one, too, huh? Thank are are you, you married? Yes, I am. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> Let's quit right here, huh? <laughs> Do you have any uh, little new models at home?
16: Well, they're sort of new. I have three. You have three? Yes, I do.
18: How old are they?
16: I have one six, one five, and one two.
18: Well, you don't look
20: it. Well, oh, thank you. <laughs>
18: you. must have got married on your bar
20: mitzvah. <laughs> 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 and uh,
18: Mr. M.A.K. Felsberg, is, is that right? Yes. Uh, where are you from, uh, Mac? New York, originally. you me Mac, huh? Yes, definitely. Oh. Where are you from? New York, originally. New York, huh? You're, you're the artist, huh? That's right. You look a little drawn. I didn't...
20: Uh, <laughs> I
18: didn't recognize the name. What comic strip do you draw, Mr. I don't draw comic strips. Well, keep trying. You'll get there,
20: yeah.
18: huh? <laughs> Are you married, Max?
20: Yes. Yeah.
18: How how did you meet your wife? At Carnegie Hall. We happened to have been sitting together. Did you go in there together? Or just uh, No. Just yeah. music lovers, huh? Yes. Yeah. You started out as music lovers, yeah, is that right. it? right. And you didn't wind up that way? No, no I carried on with my painting.
20: <laughs> I
18: hope that's the only carrying on you did, Mister. <laughs>
20: <laughs>
18: Definitely. What were they playing the night you were at Carnegie Hall? Do you remember? Oh, Brown-Brandenburg uh, Concerto Number 2. Oh. I forget it's that. It's Bach, you know. It's not Braggie. No, it's Bach, yeah. yeah. Just wanted you to know that I'm no schmo, you no. know. <laughs> I need a glass of Bach beer I've drunk in my time. (laughs) Have you ever painted a portrait of your wife, uh, Mr. Felsberg? Yes, as
20: a matter of fact.
18: Where do you hang her? (laughs) Where did you hang her? In the living room over the fireplace. (laughs) Isn't it a little warm there?
20: Talking about the painting.
18: (laughs) On this program, we're never sure, Mr. Felsberg. (laughs) Do you have many paintings on exhibition and galleries? Yes, I have some uh, all the way across country Boston, New York, Pittsburgh, and a few others. Any local people Yes, recently I sold a painting, quite a large painting to Frank Sinatra. To Sinatra? Yes. Who carry it home for? That was probably a frame up, huh? (laughs) How can you tell if someone has artistic talent? Well I don't from I don't believe in the talent. There is no such thing there's no such thing as no. This will be a great blow to Bing Crosby, you know. <laughs> Particularly since his son is now pushing him off the airway.
20: <laughs>
18: Could I line to paint a picture of uh, Dorothy uh, Green here? I think so, with his proper supervision. <laughs> well, if I have to have supervision, I'm not interested. You know. <laughs> Now, what kind of a model are you, uh, outside of being a pretty fair-looking dish, uh, Darcy? Uh, are you the new to 1950 model to Soda that's all new from bumper to
16: bumper? Well, I wouldn't say that, no. I'm a photographic and uh, showroom model.
18: And where do you do your modeling?
16: Uh, I work through Carol and Leonetti's agency in Hollywood. House
18: of Charm, isn't it? That's yeah.
16: Right.
18: May I ask how old you are, Darcy?
16: Yes, I'm 26.
18: You're a fairly recent model, aren't you? <laughs> what, what size are you?
16: What size am I? I'm a perfect size 12.
18: I don't care what size you are. You're just perfect. (laughs) What do you say is the most difficult part about
20: modeling?
16: Well, I would say the fact that we usually work a season ahead. You uh, wind up in a nice, stuffy, hot showroom modeling fur coats in the middle of the summer, and you usually wind up out on the beach in the pouring rain modeling bathing suits in Mm -hmm. January or something.
18: You wear a bathing suit in the winter?
16: Yes, I have, many times.
18: I can't see what keeps you warm.
19: You're not
18: supposed to. Well, I can dream,
20: can't
18: I? What kind of models do you prefer to work with, Mr. Felsberg? I paint to see landscapes and (laughs) seascapes. You stick to your work, and I'll stick to mine. Now, Mr. Felsberg, I want you to disregard anything I've said about you. Your professional reputation is safe in spite of me. Now, you're going to play the DeSoto Plymouth game. You bet your life. If you beat our other two couples, you'll get a crack at the $2,500 question. I can't tell you how much they won, but George is off stage to remind our listeners.
7: The pediatrician and the young mother are
5: still ahead with $110.
18: Here we go. Let's see how high you can build your $20. You selected maiden names of movie stars as your category. Here's your first question How much of the 20 will you try?
20: We'll try ten. What
18: is Mrs. Humphrey Bogard's maiden name? Lauren Bacall Bacall is correct.
20: And we're also a good
18: start with $30, Groucho. How much of the 30 are you going to try? Remember, you're going for $2,500. That's the big one now. Twenty. Twenty. What is Mrs. Tyrone Power's maiden name? Linda Christian. Linda Christian
20: is correct. They're climbing
18: now. They have $50. Now you have $50. Here's your third question. How much will you bet of the 50? Twenty-five. 25. Right, Twenty-five. Here we go. What is Mrs. Walter Wayne's maiden name?
20: Joan Bennett. Joan Bennett is right. Mm-hmm. They're really on their way. They have
18: $75. Now you got 75 and here's your last chance to beat the other couple. How much of the 75 will you risk? Can we try 60 Yes. 60 $60. What is Mrs. Desi Arnaz's maiden name? Lucille Ball. Lucille Ball! And they wind
5: up
20: with a
5: grand total of $135. And that means that they get the chance at the DeSoto Plymouth $2,500 question. And here's the model
18: and the artist, the winning couple, all ready for the DeSoto Plymouth $2,500 question, Gracho. Well, you, can, you won't have to paint anything for a long time if you guess this, Mr. Felsberg. <laughs> all right, here we go for $2,500. Ready? I'll give you 15 seconds to decide on a single answer between you, so think carefully, and please, no help from the audience. Here it is. As you know, members of the President's Cabinet are appointed. The portfolio of one of these, however, expires every four years. Which cabinet member's time expires every four years? Okay, what's the answer you two have decided upon? No I'm, uh, I'm sorry, it's the Postmaster General. Yes.
20: Oh. So that
18: means the big question next week will be we worth $3,000. Well, you lost the big money, but you won $135 in the quiz. Congratulations, and thanks to both of you.
5: you Bet Your Life is a John Goodell production transcribed from Hollywood, directed by Bob Dwan and Bernie Smith. Music by Jerry Fielding. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday night at this time for the Groucho Mark Show, you Bet Your Life. Presented by the more than 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth Dealers of America. And remember, all dealers who sell DeSoto also sell Plymouth. Two great cars, both products
18: of the Chrysler Corporation. And don't forget, next week, the big question will be worth $3,000. Well, it's almost time for Bing Crosby, so good night, folks. And remember, just be sure to see your DeSoto Plymouth dealer.
23: from the National Safety
5: Council. Just take it slow on ice or snow. This is George Feniman signing off with more than
7: 3,000 DeSoto Plymouth dealers from coast to coast.
4: Joe Marx's you bet your life from the winter of 1950 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Well, leave it to our redoubtable co-producer, Jill Harold Bailey, to come up with a fabulous factoid. One hundred years ago, on this very date, Amelia Earhart, the distinguished aviator, author, feminist, and educator, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean had her first-ever flying lesson at Kenner Field near Long Beach, California. There's so much to say about this multifaceted woman. If you're not familiar with her remarkable life, Jill and I urge you to check it out. And even if you are familiar with her career, there's a good chance you've never heard her speak. Well, here's a short address she gave on the radio possibly on New Year's Day and possibly recorded earlier, but in any case, from sometime in January 1935. Her topic? Women and science.
24: This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women, for the lives of women have been more affected by its new horizons than those of any other group. Profound and stirring, as have been accomplishments in the remoter fields of pure research, it is in the home that the applications of scientific achievement have perhaps been most far-reaching. And it is through changing conditions there that women have become the greatest beneficiaries in the modern scheme. Science has released them from much of the age-old drudgery connected with the process of living. Candle-dipping, weaving, and crude methods of manufacturing necessities are things of the past for an increasing majority. Today, light, heat, and power may be obtained by pushing buttons, and cunningly manufactured and appealing products of all the world are available at the housewife's door. Indeed, beyond that door she need not go, thanks to the miracles of modern communication and transportation. Not only has applied science decreased the toil in the home, but it has provided undreamed of economic opportunities for women. Today, millions of them are earning their living under conditions made possible only through a basically altered industrial system. Probably no scientific development is more startling than the effects of this new and growing economic independence upon women themselves. When the history of our times is written, it must record as supremely significant the physical, psychic, and social changes women have undergone in these exciting decades. The impetus of the sociological evolution of the last half century should be largely credited to those who have torn in laboratories and those who are translated into practical use the fruits of such labors. One hears a lament that a mechanized world would not be a pleasant one in which to live. Quite the contrary should be true. And it can be true if the fine minds which have accomplished so much in the realms of applied science will unite with the same enthusiasm to control their creations against social misuse. Obviously, research regarding technological unemployment is as vital today as further refinement or production of labor-saving and comfort-giving devices. Among all the marvels of modern invention, that with which I am most concerned is, of course, air transportation. Flying is perhaps the most dramatic of recent scientific attainments. In the brief span of 30-odd years, the world has seen an inventor's dream first materialized by the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, become an everyday actuality. Perhaps I'm prejudiced, but to me it seems that no other phase of modern progress contrives to maintain such a brimming measure of romance and beauty coupled with utility as does aviation. Within itself, this industry embraces many of those scientific accomplishments which yesterday seemed fantastic impossibilities. The pilot, winging his way above the Earth at 200 miles an hour, talks by radio telephone to ground stations or to other planes in the air. In thick weather, he is guided by radio beams and receives detailed reports of conditions ahead, gleaned through special instruments and new methods of meteorological calculations. He sits behind engines, the reliability of which, measured by yardsticks of the past, is all but unbelievable i myself still fly a wasp motor which has carried me over the north atlantic part of the pacific to and from mexico city and many times across this continent aviation this young modern giant exemplifies the possible relationship of women and the creations of science although women as yet have not taken full advantage of its use and benefits air travel is as available to them as to men as so often happens in introducing the new or changing the old public acceptance depends peculiarly upon women's friendly attitude in aviation they are arbiters of whether or not their family shall fly and as such are a potent influence and lastly there is a place within the industry itself for women who work. While still greatly outnumbered, they are finding more and more opportunities for employment in the ranks of this latest transportation medium. May I hope this movement will spread throughout all branches of applied science and industry, and that women may come to share with men the joy of doing. Those can appreciate rewards most who have helped create.
4: American hero Amelia Earhart in a radio broadcast from 1935. She took her first flying lesson 100 years ago today. Ms. Earhart's airplane disappeared over the Pacific on a round-the-world flight in July of 1937, just before her 40th birthday. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Harold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. There was a news item last month that made me wish Matt Dillon were both real and still around. In an interview with USA Today, the mayor of Dodge City, Kansas, Joyce Warshaw, explained her city commission vote to require the wearing of masks. We just felt like we had to do something so everybody was aware of how important it was for everybody to be responsible for each other's health and well-being, the mayor said on December 11th. And four days later, after menacing emails and death threats, the mayor resigned. I just wonder how Marshall Dillon would have handled the situation as he handles the Dodge City trouble in tonight's episode called Texas Cowboys. It comes from July 12, 1954, CBS and Gunsmoke.
9: Dodge would be like if there wasn't always a crowd
5: moving up and down Front Street. huh. Just look at them. Everybody going somewheres. <laughs> well, there are a lot of them that aren't going anywhere at all, Chester. Just drifting. Yes, sir, I guess you're right at that, Mr. doing I know when I first come to Dodge, I sure didn't have nothing in mind. Leastwise, working for a U.S. Marshal like you. Oh, well, you must have had some reason to come here, Chester. Well, a uh, backwards like reason, maybe. Huh? What do you mean? Well, it's like it wasn't to come here as much as it was to leave there. What? I say, it's like it wasn't to come here as much as it was to leave there. Oh, oh, you mean Texas? Yes, sir. Oh, Oh, why?
18: Mr. Dillon, Texas is mostly populated by my family. I got relatives,
5: thick and thin relatives, all over Texas. (laughs) Oh, what's wrong with that? Why, it's like having somebody looking over your shoulder all the while to make man spooky. Well, sir, I choose to do my sinning where nobody don't know me. Hello, Matt and Chester. Well, how are you, Doc? Where you headed for, Doc? No place, Matt. I'm just walking around. Now, you see, Chester, see what I mean? (laughs) Yes, sir.
25: Well, now, what's the matter with just walking around? Does a man have to be going someplace every minute? Anyway, you're a fine pair to
26: be criticizing people sitting here like a couple of fat horny toads in the now sun. Now, slow
5: down, Doc. Slow yeah. down. You're burning up all your fuel. Well, who's this fella? Oh. Which one of you men's Doc Adams? I am? Come on, I got a job for you. Well, oh, is that so? But well, you don't look very sick, mister. It ain't me. It's a man in camp. Camp? Couple of miles up there, Arkansas. We're holding the trail herd there. What part of Texas are you from, mister? we got 3,000 here to San Saba Longhorn. And it's been a plum, miserable drive all the way, and I ain't no temper to answer any more fool questions. All oh, right, then, do Now, hold
25: up a minute there, young fella. And, uh, uh, what's the matter with this man of yours?
5: You'll see when you get there. Well, tell me now, else how will I know what to take? Look, Doc, it wasn't my idea to come get you. Ken Talley made me come. Uh, and who's uh, Ken Talley? The trail boss. Now, you ready to go? Well, you tell me what's wrong with the man, and I'll go. Doc. (laughs) What? Um, I think I'll ride out with you. Who are you? My name's Dillon. Well, you're the marshal here, ain't you? That's right. Well, we don't need no marshal out there. Chester, go get our horses, huh? We'll ride out with Doc. Yes, sir.
0: About the Doc, Ken.
5: How many doctors they got in Dodge anyway, Choke? That's the Doc there. Well, who these other two? My name's Matt Dillon, Tully. This is Chester Crowdfoot. How do you do, Mr. Tully? Dillon, eh? Well, I didn't send for you, Marshal. Yeah, I know you didn't. And what are you doing here? That's the sick man lying in the blanket over there by the fire? You can get mounted and ride right back to Dodge, all three of you. We don't need Doc no more. Oh, no,
25: you don't, Mr. That man's sick. I'm going to take a look at him. He's
5: all right, Doc. Forget him. Come on, Doc. Well, Doc? He's dead, man. Mighty contagious disease, too. Oh? I found that when one man gets shot, it usually leads to somebody else getting shot sooner or later. Who killed this man, Tully? How'd it happen? I don't figure. It's none of your business, Marshal. But since you're so nosy, I'll tell you. He shot himself. That's a lie. He couldn't have shot himself. Why not, Doc? Because he was shot in the back.
25: That's right. Uh Uh-huh.
5: You gonna tell me who did it, Tully? No, Marshal. I ain't gonna tell you nothing. Tully, your man Chote here told us that you've had a hard drive up from the San Sabbath. Hard? We fought Indians and thieving Kansas Jayhawkers and bad weather and stampedes the whole way, Marshal. But we're still ready to fight Dodge City if we have to. Well, you've been through a lot, Sally, and I know how edgy it's, Major. All of you. But this man's been murdered, and I gotta have the murderer. His name's Bud Cowan. Whose name? Him. There. Who killed Bud Cowan? It's no use, Marshal. I got 18 Texas cowboys here. We have seventeen, and there ain't a no one of them they'll talk. Look, Teller, you're a responsible man, or you wouldn't be trail boss. Now you know what the law means, you know what it's for. Kansas law ain't for Texans, Marshal. We'll fight our own snakes. I'm not a Kansas marshal. I'm a United States marshal, but the law's the same. It don't matter. No Texans going to get hung in Kansas, leastwise not as long as I'm around. And there ain't a thing you can do about it, Marshal. Yes, there is. Like what? You men are kind of hankering to buck the tiger in Dodge, aren't they? Of say, they are. For three months, they ain't talked to nothing else. So if they don't get to Dodge, they're going to be mighty unhappy, and maybe one or two of them will decide to talk. Marshal, how are you going to keep 17 juiced up Texas cowboys out of Dodge? They'll ride right over you. No, I can't keep them out, Tolly, but I can fix it so there won't be anything for them when they get there. What do you mean? I'll close Front Street, every saloon, every gambling table, every store. I'll close them up tight. You do that. And if you knew me well enough, you wouldn't ask. Come on, Doc. Chester. You think it over, Tully. (laughs) Sure didn't take long for the word to get around, did it, Mr. Dillon? Ken Talley followed us to town yesterday, Chester. He's smart enough to know how the businessmen would react.
12: You mean he come in here and told them all about it?
5: Yeah, of course he did.
12: Oh, hello, Marshal.
5: Hello, John. Well, here's the Dodge House, Chester. You better wait out here, huh? Okay, sir. Mr. Green said they'd be waiting for you right in the lobby. Yeah, Hey, I'm glad you came, Marshal.
6: Well,
5: what can I do for
6: you, Mr. Green? Uh, well, uh, no, no, quiet, gentlemen, please. I'll do the talking. Marshal Dillon, as you can see, most of Dodge's leading businessmen are present here. Mr. Tompkins, Mr. Jonas, Mr. Botkin, Mr. Teeters, Yes, sir. And I'm here as owner of the Dodge House. Marshal, you
5: know why we're here as well as we do. Because I told Ken Tully I'd close Front Street.
6: Exactly. And we won't stand for that, Marshal. We need that Texas money, and we're going to get it. It It
3: Gentlemen. Gentlemen. A man
5: was murdered out at that camp. Oh, he was
6: just some Texas cowboy, Marshal. The prosperity of Dodge is certainly more important than him. Don't you agree, gentlemen?
3: absolutely.
15: Now, wait a minute. You
6: mean that you so-called
5: good citizens of Dodge are putting a few dollars above the value of the law? Even above the value of a human life? Don't preach to us, Marshal Dillon, all the men you have killed. Mr. Green, I never killed a man in my life, except in the performance of duty or in self-defense. All right. All right, that's not important. We're wasting time, gentlemen. I'm hired to enforce the law, and I'm going to do it. Any way I see fit. Now, is that clear? Well, then we'll complain
6: about you, Marshal. We'll all write letters you to
4: Washington man, job, and have you
15: fired. You will,
27: huh? Good.
5: Fine, that's fine. Then maybe I can get a little sleep for a change. Start walking around like an ordinary man instead of jumping at shadows thinking somebody's about to shoot me any minute. Yeah, go ahead. And maybe I can afford to have a few friends again of everybody looking at me sideways like I was some kind of a rattlesnake. Gentlemen, I might not have to kill anybody again as long as I live. Yeah, you go on. Write your letters. You'll be doing me a great big favor. Oh. And just one more thing. There's just about enough money in this job of mine to pay for my ammunition, but I'm still gonna close up Front Street. What did you say to Mr. Green and them other men yesterday? Huh? Why? Oh, I don't know. He's curious. Well, I I said the same thing that you'd say, Chester. (laughs) At least I hope you would. Oh, yes, of course I would. And I sure do thank you, Mr. Dillon. I'm mighty proud to have you say that. (laughs) But you don't know what I told him, Chester. Oh, it don't matter. I trust you. You know what you're doing. Well, thank you, Chester. I'm glad somebody thinks so. Well, of course, I've seen you make mistakes sometimes. Well, I mean, nobody ain't perfect much. It's a simple thing (laughs) for anybody. Uh, 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 Why don't you go on to the depot and pick up the mail, Chester, huh? Yes, By the way, that's right. Santa Fe just come in over an an hour ago. Good morning,
7: Marshal.
5: Well, can't tell it. Marshal, this here's Sam Peoples I brought with me. Huh? Hello, people. Hello. Marshal, I done a lot of thinking the last day or so. Now? Yes, sir. I've decided you're right about the law and all. So I went and brought Sam Peoples in. You mean he killed that man, Brad Cowan? He sure did. And these five cowboys have witnessed it, Marshal, including myself. All be glad to testify at the trials anytime you say is that right, people? Did you kill Bud Cowan? Yes, sir. Okay. Now, what happened to your face? Fall off a horse or something?
7: Yeah. Yes, sir. I, I come loose off in the Bronx,
5: yesterday. Uh huh. Okay, lock him up, Chester. Aren't you? Everything all right now, Marshal?
4: Well, I'll let
5: you answer that, Tully. <laughs> no hard feelings on my side. Just don't let him get away now. One murder is all I can produce for you. <laughs> See you later, Marshal. Well, come on, Peoples.
9: The cells is out back here.
5: Uh, wait a minute, Chester. Yes,
8: sir.
5: Uh, bring him back here, huh?
8: Yes, sir.
5: Come on, people. Peoples, tell me something. Are you a Texan? No, sir, I ain't, Marshal. And what are you doing with that San Saba outfit? I run into them when they was bringing their cattle across the Cimarron, sir. They hired me on just for grub, and I wanted to get to Dodge real bad. Yeah, I see. That, uh, bronc you fell off of yesterday, did he drop on your face? Yes, sir. Well, sort of. hmm I'd sure like to see that horse. You would? Yeah. It'd be kind of interesting to see a horse that's got hooves like a man's fist. Yes, sir. There's not much you can do about this, is there No, sir. They're all going to swear I done it. Do you know who did? No, sir, I don't. I I was out riding herd when it happened. And none of them fellas ever talked to me much, anyways. Well, you're in a tough spot. Yes, sir. Unless I can find out who did kill Bud Cowan, you're going to have to stand trial. But I'll do what I can for you, if that happens. Thank you, Marshal. I I don't guess there's much anybody can do. All them fellas testifying. Well, we'll see. Uh, Go get him something to eat, will you, sir? Yes, sir. Uh, I'll be out on the street. Ken Tully's men are going to be feeling free to do about anything from now on. I could picture Tully and his men when he got back to camp laughing at how they'd put it over on me and the rest of Dodge. I figured Mr. Green and his businessmen had talked to Talley. But I was sure they didn't know Sam Peoples was an innocent man. And neither did they understand the kind of trouble that tampering with a law could lead to. For the Texans, the lid was off. They felt that they were running the town, that nothing could touch them. And all I could do was wait. So I went over to the Texas Trail and sat with Kitty for a while, watching the crowd.
2: I'm glad you're here, Matt. Otherwise, I'd have to be drinking at the bar with one of those beat-up cowboys.
5: Well, I hope I'm not costing you money, Kitty.
3: You are, but
2: I won't start. Anyway, it's better than trying to grin back at those cowboys.
5: Well, those men have had a rough time coming up the trail, Kitty.
2: Nobody asked them to come.
5: (laughs) No, I suppose not.
2: You know, Matt, I've worked in a lot of places. Even the gold camps. Dodge is worse than any of them. Oh, is that so? Why? I don't know. Maybe the sun and the prairie take too much out of everybody. Seems like every man that comes to Dodge is out to get his own back somehow, even if he has to kill somebody to do it.
15: <laughs> well, I guess I
5: follow you, Kitty.
2: All I'm saying is that maybe our hard life makes men kind of angry, and they want to fight all the time.
5: Well, something sure makes them want to fight, or at least get drunk.
2: <laughs> Look at him. Hey, who's that coming this way, man? Huh? There.
5: Now, that's Ken tally. The San Saba Trail boss.
2: Well, he sure looks like he wants to fight.
5: Yeah, maybe he does, Kitty. I'll soon see. Marshall, Hello, Tully. You gonna introduce me to the lady?
2: Nobody has to introduce anybody here, mister. My name's Kitty. Kitty,
5: huh? Well, my name's Kin Tally. How about having a drink with me, Kitty?
2: Sorry, I'm busy.
5: Oh, come on, you ain't busy. You heard it, Tully. Go on back to the bar, huh? You're sure something, ain't you, Marshall? Why don't you get going? (laughs) Okay. Okay, I'll go. Sure, I will.
2: Is he crazy or just drunk?
5: I don't know, Kitty.
2: Anyway, I'll bet he gets into trouble before the night's out.
5: Well, if he does, there's plenty of room in jail for him.
2: I take it you've already got a grudge against him.
5: Yeah, I sure have. But it's not on my account.
2: Uh Huh? Who's?
5: An innocent little fella called Sam Peoples.
2: Sam people! Yeah.
5: Hey, wait a minute. like a fight starting. Yeah. Just stay here, Kitty.
3: I'll
6: be on the floor in a minute. All right, hold it there. Hold it. Uh,
15: What's trouble,
5: Marshal? You and this man settle your differences some other way, Choke. I won't have any gunplay here. Gunplay? Well, we wasn't fighting, Marshal. Was we, Jim? (laughs) No, (laughs) We were just haranguing each other, so... <laughs> Me and Jim always talk like that, Marshal. Don't we, ma'am? Why, look at that, Marshal. Ken Talley's running off with the gowl. let's go
14: outside
15: and look <laughs> at the moon. Sure.
2: Oh. And I'll rub the rest of this bottle around in your face when you get up.
5: All right, get out of the way, Kitty.
2: Gladly, Matt. <sighs>
5: I fooled you, didn't I, Marshal? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're sort of a fool.
15: Charlie! Eh? <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> now, look at him, Marshal. That's no way to
15: act. What's the matter
3: with you? Anyhow? All right, shut up. Uh,
9: Marshal? There's eight of us here. You think you
5: can whip all of us? No, no, I don't, Chuck. Not eight of you. Well, then you're going to get with. Come on, man. Just stay where you are, all of you. And be a fool to mix in a brawl with all of you men. I don't aim to try it. Looks like you ain't got much choice, Marshal. And we're going to beat you about half to death. No, you're not. No? What's to stop it? Don't look like nobody in here is going to help you out. I'm carrying a gun, Choke. (laughs) Oh, that. That don't bother us none, Marshal.
9: Does it, man?
5: Yeah. Of course. See, Marshal, we don't care about your gun. There's too many of us. Aren't you forgetting something, Choke? What? I don't wear this gun to kill snakes with, the way you men do. I'll have bullets in at least three of you before you get off a shot, and you'll be the first.
6: You? What's the matter with you
5: men? He's just bluffing. He's scared half to death right now. Show. Don't, don't be on. Then I'll fight it. I ain't so bad with a gun. Don't try it, Cho. You shoot me, the boys will take care of don't you. Don't do it, Cho. I'm telling you. Ah, what's a Kansas Marshal?
15: No.
5: Well, who's next? Any more of you men want to die in this place? All right, then get out of here and get on back to camp. Move. Here he is, Mr. Dillon But he ain't singing very
9: loud this morning
5: How's your jaw, Tully? Busted Doc said you busted it On this side right here I'm sorry. I uh, guess I must have lost my temper. You sure did, Marshal. But the fight's out of me now. I'm plumb sober. You heard about Gil Choate? Chester told me. Chote shouldn't have gone up against you. No, he shouldn't. Well, now he's dead. It don't matter none, I guess. What doesn't matter? Chote's the man that killed Bud Cowan, Marshal. That's why I made him come to town for dark. Kind of punish him that way. Oh? Uh-huh. Shot Cowan in the back. But I had to protect Chote anyway. You know how it is. What about Sam Peoples, Tully? Oh. Yeah. Well, I uh, wrote you a letter from Texas, Marshal, saying it was a lie. Anyway, I'm selling them cattle. I aim to be out of here in two days, Marshal. Uh-huh. Okay, Tully. Get going. We uh, can be friends now. Can't we, Marshal? You ever hear of a lawman with friends? We we'll, must have a couple. Yeah. Yeah, I have. A couple. So long, Tully. I'll tell Sam Peoples that uh, you didn't mean it. <laughs>
6: Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Harry Bartell, Vic Perrin, John Daner, and Lawrence Dobkin. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. This is the CBS Radio Network.
4: Gunsmoke episode from the summer of 1954, Texas Cowboys. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Harold Bailey is our co-producer, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at org, or follow us on Twitter at WAMU88.5. And do visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Are there still coin lockers in bus stations? I know that for security reasons they've been increasingly rare over the last couple of decades, but they were once a very common sight at railroad and bus stations and at airports. I mention it for listeners who may never have checked a bag by dropping a quarter and turning a key – That simple action figures in tonight's episode called The Big Locker from November 2nd, 1954, NBC and Dragnet.
15: Ladies
5: and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet.
6: detective sergeant. You're assigned to burglary detail. A man walks into a pawn shop and wants to sell a ring. Indications are that the ring is stolen. Your job? Find out.
23: It was Tuesday, June 17th.
5: It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Bernard. My is Friday. We were assisting another team in checking out pawn shops. And it was 9.27
25: AM when we got to 552 South Main Street. Pacific Loan Company. Hi, Joe. Frank. Right. How you, how are you doing? doing? What is it? Business
15: or pleasure? A little of both. Might check the Bible. Can't, Sure thing.
3: I'll get it for you. Where's your partner? Took the day off. Going to get some sunshine.
5: You picked a good day for it. Yeah. Hey, hi, Joe. Thank you. Herbert. these all the tickets for yesterday? Yeah, it was kind of slow Monday. Did mm-hmm.
23: you find anything? No, not what we want. Okay,
5: thanks, Herb. Oh, it's okay. You know, Joe, anytime we can help you, fellas. Yeah. Hey, Joe, while we're here, I'd like to look at a guitar. What? It's not for me. You know me better than that. The only piece I know is it ain't gonna rain no more.
3: What's wrong with how dry I am? It's funny. Mm-hmm. What do you got in a good guitar, Herb? Well, come on down here. I'll show you some good buys.
5: One of my neighbors asked me to check if I had a chance. He wants to buy his kid one. Mm-hmm.
3: What do you got? Do you see how much you want to spend? No, but I don't guess he wants to lay out too much. How about that one hanging up there? The one with the knobs on it. Oh, that's an electric. What's with the knob? For volume. Oh.
6: How much?
3: You know, that one What you have for $30. I don't think you'll go
5: that much. You got something cheaper? The kid can make his own volume. It's nice looking, though, don't you think, Joe? Yeah.
3: Hey, here's a good one. in Spanish. Is that the regular kind? That's right. How much is this? Twelve dollars.
5: Well, oh, that sounds more like his speed. Can I see it? Sure thing.
3: Yeah. It isn't tuned, but go ahead and strum it.
5: Uh-huh. But well, what should I be listening for? Tone. Oh. Yeah, that's nice. Oh, excuse
3: me, Father. Sure, glad I heard. Something I can help
5: you with, sir? Yeah. How's it sound
3: to you, Joe? You want to step
5: to the back? I don't know. I'm with you. What are we listening for here? What you You know. Oh, yeah.
15: <laughs> this
5: neighbor told me he was pretty lucky. How's that? Well, his kid's been watching those singing cowboys on TV, so now he wants to be one with a guitar. Mm hmm. This guy next door says he's glad his kid hasn't got all wrapped up in space shows. Well, says he couldn't afford a spaceship.
15: Yeah. I don't
5: guess
25: there too many second hand spaceships for sale either.
5: You no, know, I think he's trying to push your hot ring. I turn it down. Let's go. All right. Hey, you,
15: fella, hold it up. You mean me? That's all
5: right, police officers. What's the matter? Let's go
15: over to the doorway. Right over here.
5: Well, why? Come on, move. All right, hands over your head. Come on.
15: Turn around. All right. He's cool.
5: See your identification. Like what? You got a driver's license? Yeah? Get it out. All right. Yeah, take it out of the wallet. Sure. Now give it to me. James Feather. Is this your true name? Yeah. You live at this address, 1201 South Rattan Street? Yeah. Right here you are. What were you doing in that shop? I went in to sell a ring. Let's see it. All right. Yeah. Does the ring belonged to you? Yeah. I'm to wait here, Frank. I'll check Herb. Right.
15: Herb, you want to come out here a minute? Sure. All
25: right, take a look here. That's the man who tried to sell you the ring down there. Yeah?
11: All right, now look at this. Is this the ring?
5: Mm-hmm, that's an emerald, real good stone. Why'd you turn it down? Well, I thought there was something wrong, like I said. Yeah. Well, he wanted to sell it for $20. Yeah. Ring's worth close to a 1000 We took James Better to the office for questioning. Frank checked with R&I and found that he had a previous record. He'd been picked up on suspicion of burglary and had served one term for auto theft. The ring was examined and found to be genuine. Fetter maintained the ring belonged to him. After an hour of interrogation, he began to change his story. All right, I didn't know what it was worth. You mean the ring wasn't yours, then? Yeah, if I'd known it was worth that much, I wouldn't have tried to sell it so cheap. Well, where'd you get it? I found it where? MacArthur Park. When? Last night. I go over there all the time even. the evening. Did you do anything about trying to find out who lost the ring? Yeah, I checked in the papers and the lost and found. I guess I looked in all of them. Didn't see any ads, though, for a green ring. Uh-huh. Well, I looked at the ring real close and it didn't seem like a good stone, so I decided maybe it wasn't worth anything advertising. No, but it was worth trying to sell, wasn't it? Well, like I said, I ain't working. A few bucks would come in handy. Yeah, sure. You don't believe me, do you? Well, you haven't given as much reason, have you? You started out lying. Why should we think different now? Yeah, I guess I told you it was mine. I was afraid maybe you'd think I stole it. But I told you the truth now. You have. Okay. I can prove it. You take me out there. You take me to that park right now. What'll that prove? Oh, well, I'll show you just where I picked it up. Well, now, if we wait until Sunday, the trip won't be wasted, will it? Huh? We can listen to the band concert, too. We continued to question James Fetter, but we were unable to change his story. He was booked in on suspicion of violation of Section 459 PC and held for investigation. We made a check of his residence, his friends, and the places he was known to frequent. We could find nothing to hold him on. He came up on the overtime sheet, and he was released. The ring was booked as found property. Friday, June 20th. Morning, Joe. Joe. All right, did you check the book? Yeah, nothing in. Mm-hmm. Bill, letter for you. Thank you. Right. Listen to this. Hmm? You did me a favor, Now I'm going to do you one. Go to the Greyhound bus depot, rental locker number
15: 103. Yeah,
25: is that all? Take a look at it. Here.
15: Huh. Type no greeting, no signature. Yeah. What do you think? Let's check it out.
5: Frank and I took the letter over to Leighton Prince, and then we drove over to 6th of Los Angeles Street the Greyhound Bus Depot. We went to the office of Ralph Thomas, the regional manager. We told him about the letter, and in
25: his company, we went to check on locker number 103.
5: Well, the locker's empty now. We'll have to see if anything's been removed from it recently. You want to come with me, gentlemen? We'll take the elevator to the basement. All right, fine. Thank very you. Thank you very much, sir. How are the lockers checked, Mr. Thomas? The 10 cents pays for 24 hours. All lockers are checked at midnight. I see. When the time limits up, the articles are removed and a new lock's put on the locker.
11: I see. Of course,
5: as long as the fee's paid, we don't bother it. Mm Mm-hmm. All the things removed are ticketed and held for 90 days. I see. See, we hold them here at the depot for 30 days and then remove them to a warehouse. (laughs) You'd be surprised at how fast they accumulate. Yes, sir. There we are. Huh. You mean all these things here have been left in lockers? <laughs> People checked them, didn't come back for
3: them? That's right. We get quite a variety of things. We yeah, sure do. Of course, not all of them are of much value.
5: For instance, sometimes a person will go out, buy a new shirt, change it in the station, check the old one, and forget about it.
23: Mm-hmm. Look at that, Joe. That stuffed yellow poodle dog mm-hmm. up there. Yeah. Over there,
5: half a radio. <laughs> That's not much good unless you know the guy with the other half. Huh? Flat iron. Sure a lot of stuff. Yeah, what about locker 103? Oh, I see now.
23: If there was anything taken from it, it should be right over here. Mm-hmm.
5: Hey, there's some nice looking luggage. Don't see how a guy would forget something like that. Here we are. It feels like a small box.
25: That's from number 103. Oh,
5: uh, that's what the ticket says, see? Uh huh.
25: Uh-huh. What about the date
5: that this was removed? Oh, well,
3: let's see. Midnight, June 17th. That was three days ago. Yeah. It's okay if we open it? Not at all. Here you are. Here, give me the paper, Tom.
5: Yeah. Looks like a Christmas card box, huh? Yeah. Take a look, Fine. Uh-huh. What's in it, Sergeant Friday? Jewelry. We signed a release form for the jewelry, and then we went back to the office. A check of pawn shop records was made, and we found that all the pieces had been reported stolen in the recent burglary. Leighton Prince had called to say no prints were found. The owner, Mrs. Carlton Hendricks, was notified, and she came down to the office. 11.07 AM.
1: Are you, Mr. Friday, the gentleman that I talked to on the phone?
5: Yes, ma'am. It's my partner, Frank Smith. Oh,
1: how do you do, Mr. Smith? How do you do? Smith. Oh, that's a nice, uncomplicated name. If you don't mind my saying so, Mr. Smith, I think you look like a very competent officer.
25: Thank you, ma'am.
1: And you, Mr. Friday, you look, well, as though you might be more complicated, but very efficient.
25: Very nice of you, thank you. You
1: see, that's one of my hobbies, reading character from faces. My friends say that I'm most always write. Yes, ma'am. Oh, when you called, I was so thrilled. You can understand what it means to recover possessions that you'd given up for lost.
5: Yes, ma'am. Would you like to check the pieces now?
1: Yes, you know, I had to call off a bridge party this afternoon, but then there'll be others, and this will be such an experience to tell them about. <laughs> yes, ma'am.
25: Now, if you just look at these pieces and tell us if they're yours.
1: Oh, all right, Mr. Riley, whenever you're ready.
25: Yes, ma'am. Well, this is the box they were found in here.
1: Where's well, a Christmas card box? How clever of them! I must remember
17: that. You know, tell my friends.
5: Yes, ma'am, you do that. Frank, would you hand me that newspaper, please? Mm. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I'll just spread these on the table here and you can see them better. <laughs>
1: oh, 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 Maurice would just die if we saw this. Is
3: that your husband?
1: Oh, gracious, no. I don't have one. I mean, at present. I'm divorced, you see, but we're still very good friends. I met Maurice, the jeweler. Huh? Just the way Mr. Friday spread my jewels on the newspaper. You see, when Maurice showed me these things, he had them all displayed on a wonderful piece of velvet. Oh.
5: Then you recognize these pieces being yours, Miss Hendrickson? Oh,
1: yes. Well, there's my wedding ring and my gold charm bracelet. Have you looked at that clothes, gentlemen?
15: No, I missed it.
1: Oh, you should. Here, here now, look. Now, you see, all those things have a special meaning. My husband gave them to me. Uh, the little stop and go light. Oh, that was silly. I was just learning to drive.
15: Yeah.
1: It was a good thing we had insurance. Oh, and this little wheelbarrow. The first time we went to the races and I won so much money, he said I'd need this to carry it in.
15: Mm, yes, yes. Well,
5: then I guess we can report that the jewels have been identified by the owner, huh? Oh,
1: uh uh-huh. You see the little cell phone, Mr. Friday.
5: Yes,
15: ma'am.
1: It's got a number on it. But my husband didn't give me this. He didn't? Oh, no. No, it was all innocent enough, but poor Carlton. That's what my husband got furious. I even caught him with a magnifying glass one day trying to read the number of the dear jealous man. Uh-huh. Is everything out of the box, Mr. Friday?
5: Yes, ma'am. It's all right there in the paper. Why?
1: Well, I don't see my ring.
5: You mean this one right here? No,
1: no. No, no. That's not it. Uh, it was an emerald in platinum setting.
5: Well, when we checked the burglary report, I don't remember seeing any listing for that, Miss Hendrick.
1: Well, yes, I know. By the time I made the report, I hadn't missed it. These things were stolen from my jewelry box. I thought the emerald was in the safety deposit box. I
5: see. But why didn't you make a report when you discovered that it was gone?
1: Oh, well, it happened at a bad time. I'd made plans to go over to Reno for a vacation. You know what a lovely place that is. Well, I thought if the rest of the things were recovered, the ring would be, too.
5: Well, nevertheless, you should have taken the time to report it, ma'am.
1: Oh, yes, I know. But at the time, I was more concerned with my plans for this trip. Have you ever been to Reno?
15: No, ma'am. Oh, you
1: should go sometime. It's really wonderful. I'm going back this winter for the winter sports. Do you gentlemen's key.
5: No, ma'am. No. Miss Hendricks, how much was your ring valued for?
1: Well, I'm not quite sure, but I think Carlton paid something like $1,000 for it.
25: Mm-hmm. Well, three days ago, we recovered an emerald ring that was supposed to have been found. It may possibly be yours.
1: There, you see? Nothing to worry about. I just knew when I saw you two men that everything was going to be all right. My friends are right. I can't read character. Yes,
25: ma'am. We'll have to go over to the property department to identify the ring, Miss Hendricks.
1: Oh, good. Good. That'll be another experience. I'm going to have to get in touch with Carlton. I'll need another charm for my bracelet.
15: Yes, ma'am, you will. And
1: I know now just what I want, something that symbolizes this occasion, and especially you two officers. Uh Can you guess what it'll be?
15: No, I can't. Can you, Frank? No, John, I can't.
1: Two little gold bloodhounds.
5: (laughs) We took Miss Hendricks over to the property department in the central jail. We signed out for the ring, and she identified it as being hers. All the jewelry was booked as evidence. We went to the district attorney's office and got a warrant for the arrest of James Feder. We got out a local and an APB on the suspect. Frank and I checked his residence. but We were told the suspect had moved several days previously. The landlady had no forwarding address. She couldn't tell us about any visitors or any mail he'd received. She was unable to tell us if he drove a car. We rechecked his known associates and friends. Several leads were obtained, but none of them turned up anything. Five days went by. Thursday, June 25th. Morning, Frank. Hi, now. You been here long? About five minutes. I just couldn't hit the lights this morning. What's new? Well, we got a call from Waddle, Theft. Yeah. They picked up a man earlier this morning trying to steal a car. Somebody we want? I think so. James Fetter.
23: You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. <laughs>
5: Before Frank and I checked out of the office, we contacted all the theft detail and told them we wanted to talk to Fedder. We drove over to the main jail. The suspect was brought to the interview room. I heard you guys were looking for him. That's right. I could have come in, but I didn't think it was important. So you do it the hard way, huh? This is bad beef. I guess you figure them all that way, huh? No, not always. You take a chance. You get caught, it's bad. But you ain't getting credit for something you didn't do. That's so? Yeah. What do you want to see me about? You don't know, huh? No, just as some of the boys said you were asking for me. thought maybe you'd like to tell us more about where you found that ring. Oh, that again? Yeah, that again. You got my story. Now, what more do you want? We got an alibi. Now, we'd like the truth. I found it. Sure you did. I don't know where I fit in and what you're trying to build, but I want no part of it. It's not that simple. All right, you tell me. That ring wasn't lost. It was stolen, and you know it. You figure I'm your pigeon. Is that it? Let's try it for size, huh? Mm-mm, not this time. You can leave it with somebody else. Might take a little time, but we're gonna make you on it. No, not from where I sit. You'll need a better story than you got right now. Well, not until you can prove I didn't find it. We got the other stuff you took. Oh, come on, now you're really reaching No, I don't think so. You did us a favor, but that doesn't put us on your side.
25: Look, maybe you better fill me in. We got your letter. You did? Yeah. That's great. Now, tell me what I said. I'll do even better. Here, you read it. This is
5: the letter I wrote. That's right. Uh Uh-huh. I get it. Now, you found some stuff down at the Greyhound Depot. You called it. Well, I'll give you something else. Yeah. I didn't write that letter. I don't know who did, but it wasn't me. The ring you had has been identified by the owner. A lot of other stuff we recovered. Look, I'll tell you something. It's like I said, you take your chances, but I ain't gonna front for this deal. Yeah, looks like someone was trying to nail me in, but I don't want it. You said I did your favor, I didn't, but I'm gonna now. All right, why don't you? I got that ring from a girl I know. What's her name? Jill Mason, go ahead. Well, I ran into her the other night. I told her I could use a couple of bucks. She's owed me fifteen for a long time. She said she didn't have any cash, but she gave me the ring. Uh-huh. I didn't know what it was worth. That's the truth. I don't think she did either. She's carrying a pretty fair package at the time. Right, go ahead. Well, she told me she got the ring from a boyfriend. That's all I knew about her. Why'd you give us the story about the park? Well, I figured maybe it'd keep her out of trouble. Long as you had the ring, I thought that was enough.
23: Well, what's this girl mean to you?
5: You mean how well do I know her? Yeah. i talked to her, that's all. But the only reason I give this to you is I don't want to pay somebody else's bill. She ever done any big time? I don't know. I never had any serious talks with her. One tells where she lives?
25: Yeah. You know, I don't understand that letter. Maybe you still think I wrote it, but I didn't. We only got your word for that. No. doesn't make sense I'd send a letter if I'd taken the stuff and wanted to keep it. You might have. Why? You made a lot of other mistakes.
5: After further questioning, the suspect gave us a description of Jill Mason and her address. Frank and I went back to the office and checked her name through R&I, but we found no previous record for anybody answering her description. We drove over to 943 Wright Street, and we found the apartment house Fedder had told us about. Jill Mason's name was listed on a mailbox near the front entrance. We went up to the third floor, apartment 316. We rang the bell, and the door was opened by a woman of about 35 years of age. Her face showed signs
25: of having recently been bruised.
2: Yeah? What is it? You're Jill Mason? That's right.
25: Police officers would like talking. to, talk to
2: you. Oh, well, I was just going to the beauty part. I am late now.
25: We'd appreciate it if you can wait, ma'am.
2: All right.
5: All right, if we come in? Guess so. Thank you.
15: <coughs> Live alone here? Yep. All right, if we look around? Go ahead. Right. Yeah.
2: Look, what's this all about? I don't think I like it. That slob Whitey put you up to this? Say your pardon? Whitey, the bartender of the one stock. That chiseler make a fuss over the couple of ten-cent glasses I broke last night?
5: We haven't talked to him. It's okay, Joe.
2: I'm not surprised me if he had. Imagine him telling me I wasn't no lady. His shins are going to be sore for a couple of days.
11: Do you know a person named James Feder? What's the last name? Fetter,
25: Feder. F E D E R.
2: You say he knew me?
25: Can you tell us that, please? You know?
2: Yeah. Say, uh, is this going to take long?
5: To make a difference?
2: Yeah, I'd like to call and cancel my appointment.
5: All right.
2: Thanks. John, Joe Mason. i going to have to cancel my appointment. Okay, I'll call you. Yeah. I'm sorry, honey. Yeah. That's goodbye. No sense keeping her waiting. I didn't have to ask you if you'd be here long. When It wasn't about last night, I knew.
25: Mm-hmm.
2: What if I sit down?
25: Go ahead.
2: I could lie to you, but if you talk to Federer, it'd only be wasted breath. I'm beat as it is, more than one way. Did you give Federer a ring? That's what kicked the whole business off. Yeah. You see my face? It look too bad now, but you should have seen it a week ago. If i had had a gun, I think I'd have shot him. Fetter, you mean, huh? No, he didn't have anything to do with it. I mean Steve Remsen. Who's he? The guy that gave me the ring. The one I gave to Fetter for the money I owed him. I was pretty stupid about it, but that wasn't any reason for me to take the beating.
5: Mm. When did this Remsen get the ring?
2: Did you get my letter? No, so I got even with him.
5: Did you know the ring was stolen when you gave it to Fetter?
2: No, Steve just gave it to me. He didn't say anything about where he got it or how much it was worth nothing. Just before I saw Fetter, I'd had a fight with Steve. Mm -hmm. Got a little loaded. When Fetter asked me for the money, I gave him the ring.
5: Remsen told you it was stolen, did he?
2: Later. If he'd found out what I'd done with it, he got real sore. Said if Fetter tried to pawn the ring, they'd find out about the other stuff.
25: Uh-huh.
2: Said he couldn't go back to the bus station for it. Cops might pick him up. I see. We were up here, he was drinking, got madder all the time, and finally worked me over. mm Well, he got in touch with me after you let him go. Told me what had happened. I didn't let on that I knew about the ring, but that's when I figured how to get even with Steve. I mailed you the letter.
5: You know where Remsen is now?
2: No. He'll probably call today. I haven't seen him since he beat up on me, but he'll call. Trying to make up. I told him we were through. I can get him up here for you.
25: Mm-hmm. Do you know where he lives?
2: Not now. He's moved.
25: Can you give us the address?
2: Sure. But don't you believe me? I wouldn't lie to you, not after what he done to me. Mm -hmm. I want to get even with him, that's all. I don't know why you don't fire. Well, maybe we will.
15: Yeah?
5: If he shows up. We called the office, and another team of men was sent out to check the address Joe Mason had given us for Steve Remsen. We had the name checked through R&I, but without result. Frank went out and moved the car away from the building in case Remsen might show up. We went back to the apartment and waited for him to call. Ten hours went by. She received several calls, but none of them from Remsen. Manuel Pena, one of the detectives
25: checking Remsen's address, called and said that they'd found that he moved away on June 18th. He said they would make a follow-up investigation. 11.30 p.m.
2: What if he doesn't call me?
25: He said he might, didn't he? I
2: know, but it's never at any particular time. I just said he'd been calling. maybe he won't. What happens then?
23: We'll wait and see. Remember, hold it so we can hear it now. I
2: know. Hello? Oh? oh, hi. Uh... I don't know if I can make it. Well, I know. I'd like to, but I'll, I'll have to call you. Uh-huh. Sure. Sure, honey. Thanks for calling. Bye. Girlfriend wanted me to go bowling, with not Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard what I told her. Guess it's better not to try to plan anything,
15: huh?
2: Yeah. I have to door buzzer. Someone's calling from down below. The door's locked at 10.
25: All right, answer it and hold the receiver so we can hear. You still don't trust me. That's not the point.
2: Well? Him. Get him up there. What's that, Steve? Uh huh. I know, honey. I guess I was wrong, too. Uh huh. Come on up. Hurry, honey. There. That'll open the front door for him. He'll be right up.
25: Frank, you want to unlock this door? Yeah. a gun?
2: I know he's got one.
25: All set? Yeah.
5: Hiya, doll. Police officer Simpson, get your hands hey, up. Hey, what's going on, on over your head? Hold it right there. Right? Yeah. What is this, Jill? All right. Nice clean. Get your hands behind
25: your back. Come on.
2: You heard him. These are police officers. Honey.
25: Why you... I'd right, hold it right there. Never mind. You and the cops. I should have finished what I started with you. You tried. You wouldn't have got your laylet if you'd used your head. We wouldn't be in this mess now. My fault for tying with a knothead like you. Oh, you... All right, now stop it, both of you. Sure, it's just that you guys never come close if it wasn't for this dumb broad. You tell us. Had it all worked out, things were going just the way I planned. All right.
5: Sure, I'd be sitting pretty except for her. Yeah, sure you would. Dumb bro, the biggest mistake you ever made. No, there was one other. What? The first time she talked to
23: you. Steve Lynn Remsen was tried and convicted on one count of burglary in the second degree and received sentence as prescribed by law. Burglary in the second degree is punishable by imprisonment for a period of not more than one year in the county jail, or by imprisonment in the state penitentiary for a period of not less than one, nor more than 15 years. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police, W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Fraser. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Herb Ellis, Harry Bartell, Georgia Ellis. Script by John Robinson, Earl Schley. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking.
5: Dragnet. The story of your police force in action is a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service.
4: Episode called "The Big Locker" from the fall of 1954, and from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. According to the Farmer's Almanac and other authorities, a decade begins not on the year that ends in a zero, but in the year that ends in a one. That means we're at the very beginning of the 20s, and may they be roaring with robust health for us all. This gave me occasion to wonder how radio began the decade 50 years ago in 1971, when it had been nearly nine years since Johnny Dollar and Suspense had left the air and the Top 40 format had taken over radio. As it happens, the medium ushered in the 1970s with a monster hit, and one that had an enormous impact on cultures around the world. It was the first solo number one hit, by a member of the Beatles, and it's been covered by more artists than any other solo Beatles tune. Recorded mostly over the summer months of 1970 in London's Abbey Road Studios for Apple Records and inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2014, here is the number one hit on the radio 50 years ago this week, George Harrison's My Sweet Lord. November 23, 1970, and topping the charts for most of this month, 50 years ago, member of the Order of the British Empire, George Harrison, with his biggest hit, My Sweet Lord. This is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Harold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And you're listening to WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at wrau 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at wamu.org. I haven't done the math, but I'm willing to state that Mickey Spillane has to be among the handful of all-time best-selling American authors of detective fiction. And there's a gritty quality to his writing that sets it apart. His private eye hero, Mike Hammer, was violent and often disdainful of the law. He was a veteran of jungle warfare in World War II, and he seems like he's transplanted himself to a different jungle, New York City. For a couple of years in the 1950s, there was a Mike Hammer radio series. Not too many episodes survive, but here's one from April 7th, 1953. In addition to Larry Haynes in the title role, it stars Jan Minor, who for many years was on TV as Madge the manicurist in the Palmolive dishwashing liquid commercials. The story's called Sophisticated Lady, and it comes from the mutual network series, That Hammer Guy. That Hammer Guy, a new suspense
5: series
6: transcribed based on Mickey Spillane's fabulous Mike Hammer. More than 20 million readers have thrilled with exciting books. In just a moment, you'll meet in person, Mickey Spillane, That Hammer Guy. Here's the shocking
5: truth. The truth about the growing immorality in the United States. May Esquire's revealing expose, Call Girls and Fall Guys, reports that
6: millions of Americans would end up behind prison bars if it were possible to enforce all the laws on sex. Yes, it's the truth now told in a way you've never heard before. And it's in the current issue of Esquire. Here are the startling facts. Each year, both you and the government are cheated by those who would use immorality as an income tax deduction. And loose
5: money is buying loose morals in a way that threatens your very way of life. May Esquire reveals the carefully hidden secrets of New York and Hollywood's Romeos and Juliet's. Don't miss. All girls and all guys in the May issue of Esquire, on your newsstand now. And now, here is Larry Haynes in the Mickey Spillane mystery, That Hammer Guy. You've been prowling the town like a happy tomcat with a night full of delicatessen garbage cans. But by the time dawn rolls around, you've got that washed-out gray feeling. So you turn in at the nearest glorified flop house and hit up the sleepy room clerk for a bird. Here's the key room 500. Someone just checked out. You're lucky. Any special service you want? All you want is sleep. So you crawl in the sack like a bear who's finally found its winter cave. But just when you settle down to hibernate, the knocking starts. Oh. <laughs> Keep your shirt on. Okay, okay, I'm coming. Yeah, what is it? stop. Oh, oh. Before the world exploded into orange flashes, all you saw was a pair of old beat-up brown and white saddle shoes. The stabbing pain in your side brings you out of the whirling blackness, and you're still in the room. But on the bed now, and the unfriendly, pasty face of the desk clerk is looking down into yours. You're lucky, Hammer. It's only a flesh wound. This is luck. I'd like to know what you think misfortune is. If you're going to get yourself shot, why pick this hotel? Where else in town can you get a bullet through your side instead of breakfast and bed? You can't afford to be funny. Well, thanks for the patch job. Does, uh, a little information come with the room service? For information, you go to a booth in an the apartment store. I'd like to know who plugged me. You don't mind that, do you? Your clothes are hanging over the chair. You're all checked out. I asked you a question. How should I know? You fool around with dames. Things like this can happen. This wasn't a dame. You know more than I do. Why ask me? There's a guy wearing brown and white saddle shoes. That's all I know. You tell me the rest. All I can tell you is to get out of here. Well, maybe I want to stay till the doctor comes. You don't need a doctor. All right, then the cops. Look, Hammer, you don't want any trouble with cops. They
7: ask a lot of questions. We don't want any trouble with the cops either. We got enough trouble already. I'll bet you have. Like I said, your clothes are on the chair. We need the room. Uh-huh, for a shooting, gallery. You got
5: ten minutes to get out. Well, I'll need more. Ten minutes, or a couple of guys will be up to show you. I'll show you. you be, be hospitable, or you'll get your neck wrapped around the bedpost. Let go. You're going to answer my question. Go. You're going to answer or you're going to go around with your head in a cast for a long time.
20: All right, all right, all right, all right,
5: all right. You saw the guy who shot me. No, I didn't. On uprights. I, I swear. He must have passed through the lobby downstairs. You were the last person I saw in the lobby. Probably used the backstage. He said somebody just checked out of the room before I took it. Who was it? I don't know his name. You got a register. He didn't sign in. He slipped me five bucks
20: to sign in. Let's try that again. Martin. This Frank
25: Martin. Why didn't you want to tell me his name? He slipped me the money to keep my mouth
20: shut. Okay, fill me in
5: with the rest. What kind of a guy was this Frank Martin? It looked
20: like a He checked in two days
5: ago. Stayed in his room all the time. Even his meal sent up. Why'd he leave? I don't know. He came running down the stairs like the devil was after him and went out. Went out where? Didn't leave a forwarding address. Oh, you want more the same? No, no way. Well, right, keep talking.
7: I helped him get a cab. I heard him tell the driver something. What? An address. The hotel
5: Fairfield, I think. You just think? The Fairfield. I'm sure. That's better. <laughs> no trouble. I told you we don't want any trouble here, yeah, well, You better pray you told me the truth. Well, oh, I did. Now, oh, will you please get out of here? All right. But if you didn't level with me, I'll be back. And it won't be the reputation of this joint I'll hurt. It'll be you. You'll find Frank Martin at the Fairfield, all right. But someone found him before you did. Whoever shot you by mistake got to Martin and corrected the error. The desk clerk was right. This Frank Martin must have been a hayseed, the kind of a guy you'd expect to see calling the turns at a square dance. The room's been stripped of everything except the leather picture frame on the night table. And whoever tore out the picture left the lower right-hand corner jammed into the broken glass. And on that corner, you read the scrawl to my darling husband from Lillian. Except for that, you're at a standoff. Yeah. Frankie? Uh, yeah.
16: This is Ella. I found out where she is, Frankie boy. You're in for a big surprise. Who? Who? You spent two years looking for that ever loving wife of yours. You come here all the way from Kansas, and now that I can deliver her, you sound like it don't mean a thing. Uh, where is she? Where is she? Say, hey, what's the matter with you? Don't you remember our agreement?
5: Oh, uh, yeah, I just was anxious.
16: Well,. At Frankie boy, you bring the 500 bucks and you'll get the information. Mm-hmm. Bring it where? Jefferson Park in 20 minutes. Okay?
25: Fine.
16: I'll be under the statue of Columbus. And believe me, Frankie boy, you're going to discover a whole new world.
5: You've got to know the rest about Frank Martin because you've got to know how you can locate saddle shoes. On the way over to the park, you keep thinking about a mild little guy who came to the big city to find his wife and was stopped dead. When you get to the statue of Columbus, there's a dame standing under it, glancing around like a lookout for a heist job.
25: Looking for something?
16: If I was, you couldn't find it.
25: That's a nice statue, but you'd make a much nicer one.
16: Don't get fresh. I might blow the whistle. There's
25: nothing wrong with talking, is there?
16: This isn't the time. I'm here on business. Mm -hmm.
5: You're lucky I know what kind of business, or I might blow the whistle.
16: Hey, who are you?
5: We made a date, Ella. Remember?
16: Either I have a short memory, or you've got a long nose.
5: You uh, have some information for me.
16: I have some information, but you're not Frank Martin.
5: You'll have to settle for me.
16: Where's Frank? My date's with him.
5: He's been dead over an hour.
16: Try again. I just talked to him 20 minutes ago.
5: You talked to me. Too bad. About
25: Martin?
16: About the 500. I hate to miss a payoff like that.
25: Uh, Well, you can tell me what you were going to tell him.
16: Sure, I could. Well, Got the 500? No. I
5: didn't think so.
25: Yeah, but why let this relationship be cheapened by money?
16: I never do anything
5: for nothing. I didn't think so.
16: Goodbye, soldier. Your leave is over.
5: Don't overrate yourself. I just hate to see people killed. It messes up our fair city streets. Killed? What's that supposed to mean? Frankie Martin was looking for his wife, Lillian, wasn't he? So? So somebody didn't want him to find her, so he got killed.
16: So he got killed?
5: What's that got to do with me? You
25: know where his wife is, don't you? All
16: right, I do. Why should you want to know? You're no cop, are
5: you? No, I'm
25: no cop. But I'm curious about Lillian Martin and the
5: guy who wears a pair of beat-up saddle shoes. I stopped when a saddle shoe slugs for Frank Martin before the mistake was corrected.
16: Saddle shoes, huh? Maybe I could locate them for you. Cash on the line, of course. Hmm.
25: What a wonderful friend you'd make.
16: My only friend I have looks at me in the mirror every morning when I brush my
25: teeth. I bet you like to think that people write books about you.
5: I
16: learned early in life that you get by only on a strict cast and carry basis. And I didn't read it in a book.
5: Am I telling me how well you know Lillian Martin?
16: Well enough to feel sorry for a husband. Now go home and lick your wounds. You look like the kind of a guy with a past that can absorb this experience.
5: A wound of mine isn't going to get healed till I find saddle shoes and Lillian Martin.
16: Faces, strength. Even in my society, her kind is marked no good. You can
5: easily lose your life membership in your society. You said
16: that before.
5: You know where she is. It'll be just as easy to kill you as it was to kill Martin.
16: I can take care of myself. Yeah,
5: that's what they all say before the gun goes off. Now, if you'll tell we me...
16: You still haven't got the 500. See you around.
7: You should live so long.
5: You watch her walk down the park path, swinging her hips like a basketball player taking a pivot shot. In a moment, she's free of the bushes and out in the open. You grind out your cigarette and start to follow. Only you don't get for it. And Ella, well, she makes even less progress. Um. And now back to the Mickey Spillane mystery. That hammer guy. You can't see where the shots come from, but you know by the crazy pirouette Ella makes as she goes down that she isn't getting up anymore. And when she goes down, your hopes of locating either Lillian's shoes sink with her. She was dealing for five hundred dollars. But all she has in her pocketbook is $2.40 and several matchbooks advertising the friendship bar. After you call Pat Chambers at Homicide, you go to that bar. Look
16: all wound up, mister. Why don't you relax?
5: You've been buying drinks around, but nobody knows a thing. You take a look at the dame who's wrapped around the bar stool next to you. And you know a few more drinks, and she won't even recognize her own name.
16: Sophisticated lady. Isn't that a pretty song?
5: It's a song.
16: Special for me. Never get tired of listening. I hear you've been asking around about Lillian. Wouldn't you like to buy me a drink?
5: Sure, why not? What are you drinking?
16: Almost anything. Name it. Bourbon will be fine.
5: Same as you. Another one of these, bartender.
16: Such a pretty song.
5: What about Lillian?
16: Sophisticated Lady. My special favorite piece.
5: Oh, um, a drink. Thanks. Well, that you here,
16: huh? To you, mister. You want to know about Lillian Martin?
5: That's right.
16: Forget her, mister. She's no good. She'll ruin you.
5: Look, I want information, not advice. How well do you know her?
16: Lillian, too well.
5: Look at me.
20: Pretty. Oh, I can no. be
16: pretty again, too, anytime I want. All I have to do is stop drinking this stuff.
5: So why don't you stop? Because
16: <laughs> I can't. <laughs> you ask a silly question, you get a silly answer. It's silly, isn't it?
5: What was she to you?
16: Lillian, everything, Nothing.
5: What's that supposed to mean?
16: Two kinds of people in this world. One with a long story and the one with a short story. You don't want to hear the story of my life, do you?
5: I've got nothing but time.
16: I'm the short story type. Lillian was my friend. I gave her a place to sleep, helped to get a job, let her wear my clothes. Even introduced her to, as they say in the story books, the man I love. And? And she took him away from me. You want to find her? I want to find her. Me too. Ruined me. Ruined my boyfriend. Ruined the only guy I ever loved. Have yeah, you heard such a sad, short story. <gasps> my name's Vera Condon. Call me Vera if you like.
5: What about your ex-boyfriend? Is he around? Dave? Hmm. I
16: haven't seen him since she took him away. Um,
5: well, maybe he'll come floating back.
16: Dave? I'll slam the door right in his face. No, I won't. What's the difference? what I do? He's not coming back.
5: Look, uh, Vera, here's my card. If he does show, give me a ring, huh? If you happen to
25: find out where he is, let me know.
16: You're a nice guy. We should have met before. Things would have been different.
25: Yeah. Things
5: always would have been different. The days roll by as slow as glue coming out of a bottle.
25: And with every itching ache of the healing wound in your side, you know you're going to find Lillian Martin in saddle shoes if it's the last thing you do. You try everything, look everywhere,
5: but nothing happens. And just when you're ready to face the fact you're in a downfall with no hope for a breeze, the phone rings.
16: Mike, this is Vera Condon. Come over to room 417, the royalty apartments. The door will be open. With the
5: apartments are royalty. You know they've been in exile too long. Vera's room is filthy with empty bottles and smells like old home week at a Kentucky mountain still. And she's sprawled over the bed, kicking her feet against the backboard in time to the
25: phonograph record.
16: Every year, such a pretty song, Mike. Sophisticated lady.
25: What'd you want to see me about, Vera?
16: I remember when guys didn't have to have a reason
25: to see me. Now, you know what my reason is.
16: Yeah. Lillian. Always her. What's the matter with me?
25: Nothing, but...
16: You can't kid me, I know no more sophisticated ladies.
5: You know something. That's why you asked me over. You know something about Lillian Martin?
16: She disappeared over a year ago with Dave. I still don't know where she is. Maybe Dave does.
25: You uh, told me you didn't know where he is.
16: Well, you know how girls are. They always change their minds. So? There ought to be something in it for me besides a drink at a bar, don't you think?
5: What do you want there?
16: Something I lost a long time ago. My self-respect.
5: I can't help you with that.
16: Too late, huh? Mike, you don't have to be honest all the time.
5: Vera, I can't help you lie to yourself. You can't break every mirror in the world.
16: Nobody can help me anymore. Nobody but you. You're a nice guy. I like you Mike. I'm a
5: guy looking for somebody.
16: If I tell you where he is, will you come back and see him?
25: Sure.
16: Even if you find Lillian? Sure. His name's Dave Williams.
25: Where will I find him?
16: Where you find everybody who's been nice to Lillian? At the bottom of the ladder. In the mud.
25: And where's the mud he's in?
16: A place called the Gotham Club down on the 4th Street. But don't let the name fool you. It's a flea bag of a flop house. Thanks.
25: Here, uh, maybe you can use this.
17: Twenty dollars. You're a nice guy, Mike.
16: You don't have to tell me what it's for, so you don't have to bother with someone like me anymore. I'm paid off. I told you i will come back. I mean it. I can straighten out, Mike. Honest.
5: Sure you can if the bottle you buy has perfume in it.
16: Sure, perfume. That's a good idea. When you see me again, I'll be like I was before. Sparkling, just like those rhinestones. I can really straighten out.
5: You leave Vera all hope. But you know her hope is as empty as the stock exchange on Sunday morning. You know just what kind of a bottle she's going to buy.
25: When you find Dave Williams in that flop house, you begin to understand what she means about Lillian. It's an old story, friend. She made me what I am today. You don't know what Dave Williams was like a year ago, but today he isn't winning any prizes as a lady killer. It's
18: crazy for a guy to
5: believe in a dame. You always find out too late. Isn't what Vera told me. Vera? Yeah, I understand it's even too late for her. I'm only interested in Lillian right now. Forget it. I can try, but her husband won't let me. Husband? So she had one of those, too. Yeah. And he got paid off worse than you did. Somebody killed him because he wanted to find her.
28: Always a smart operator, that Lillian. Nobody
5: who uses a gun instead of his brains is smart. I wonder. What? Who's better off, her husband or me? I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I could use a benefit. Look, just tell me where I can get hold of Lillian, and I'll leave you. Get hold of her. (laughs) You got a shovel handy? What do you mean? Lillian's dead. She's been buried in Fairmont
28: Cemetery for over six months.
5: And now, back to the Mickey Spillane mystery, That Hammer Guy. When Dave Williams tells you that Lillian Martin is dead, the news hits you like a pile driver. But right after that shock, you get the biggest crusher of them all. Just as you
25: get up to leave, you look down at
5: the foot of his bed, and they peeping out at you like obscene eyes is a pair of old, beat-up brown and white saddle shoes. You want to turn back and listen to a few of Dave's bones crack, but you hold yourself in and get out. You're waiting outside in your car when he comes out and gets into a cab. You tail him to a Tony apartment building on Park Avenue. You watch him go in, call on the house phone, and then take off. The doorman tells you his call was to the penthouse occupied by a Mr. and Mrs. Stephen Kane. Kane himself greets you at the penthouse door, shows you into the library, and answers your questions with the calm of an efficient surgeon. I'm sorry, Mr. Hammer, but I never heard of this Lillian Martin. I didn't think you did. This, uh, this isn't her kind of world.
7: I suppose we ourselves create our own kind of world. Yeah, well,
5: sometimes you get helped along, whether you like it or not. I happen to believe that we are the masters of our own destinies. Well, maybe you're right, but it's nice to think you've got someone to blame. Uh, just what do you mean by that? I mean the guy who called up here a few minutes ago. Nobody called here. This phone is used for my business only. Well, for him, the call might have been for pleasure.
7: The call may have come in on the house phone. It did? You could be entirely mistaken, Mr. Hammer. Is your wife around?
5: I don't know. What does she do, fly in and out the window? She's anything but a
7: witch, Mr. Hammer. I didn't mean it that way. I'm sure you didn't. You're perhaps referring to her coming and going without my knowledge. Yeah, that's right, I am. She has a private entrance to her portion of the apartment. Society life is rather boring unless you have an outside interest such as charity work. I'm afraid Helen has thrown herself completely into her hobby.
5: Mm. I never met a husband who doesn't know where his wife is. I don't have to know. I trust my wife implicitly. But I'd still like to know about that
7: phone call. Then why don't you ask my wife? Well, I thought you said you didn't know whether or not she was here. I was only talking in theory. I like people to know how well-mated we are. Saves embarrassing talk about the difference in our ages.
5: Mm. Would you mind calling her in? She's resting in her sitting room. You may go in, if you like. You go into the sitting room, and the first feeling you get is the fluffiness of the ruffles and the smoothness of the satin. But Mrs. Helen Kane, for better or worse, is conspicuous by her absence. Then you spot a photograph on an end table. It's a shot of a beautiful blonde, slow-eyed dish, practically smiling the words of the autograph from the lower right-hand corner. To my darling husband, from Helen. And it's written in the same scrawl it spelled out, to my
25: darling husband, from Lillian. Oh,
16: Mike.
25: I came back like I promised, Vera.
16: Thanks. Same song. Same pretty
25: song,
5: sophisticated lady. My song. I saw Dave Williams there.
16: Did he ask for me?
5: No, he talked mostly about Lillian. Oh. He said she was dead.
16: cat can't say I'm sorry. But she isn't. Huh?
5: Dead. I found her.
16: You did? What did she say?
5: She said you did. What did she say? What
16: you're laughing at me, Mike.
5: You're nothing to laugh at, Lillian.
16: I'm not that drunk. You've got the names mixed up. Mine's Vera.
5: Sure. Vera and a lot of other things, too, including Mrs. Helen Kane. Now who's drinking too much? Look, I saw your photo in your sitting room with your autograph. Oh? Oh. I've heard of Dave's making themselves up but never down, like you.
16: And you didn't believe Dave about my death six months
5: ago? I almost did until I saw his saddle shoes under the bed.
16: Is that a mistake? The
5: worst kind. I was shot by a guy wearing saddle shoes. Oh? Oh.
16: Pity I didn't have a chance to spend that $20 you gave me. Would have been for perfume.
5: No perfume could kill the stink of death around you.
16: Well, I had to do something about Frank. My new husband would have been horrified if he found out I was a bigamist.
5: From Hayseed to Park Avenue worked your way up the ladder, didn't you? The
16: girls got a right to live. So
5: did Frank Martin. So that dame who was killed in Park Avenue. All she wanted was 500 bucks. She wanted much more from me. What does Dave Williams want from you?
16: All the money he can get. But I don't mind giving it to him.
5: Nice guy, Dave.
16: I'm satisfied. Sure,
5: as long as your husband doesn't find out.
16: He's old, and he doesn't ask questions. He's glad to have me around. On my turn... He's
5: not gonna have you around anymore, Vera, or Lillian, or Helen. By the way, which is it, really?
16: Pick anyone, Mike. Any name you call me is all right. Nah,
5: you wouldn't like the name I've got picked out for you.
16: My.
25: You're thinking of a price.
16: Everybody's got well, one. Well,
25: this is one time I haven't. You should have believed Dave. Doesn't make any difference now. Doesn't it? Oh. Why did you wait till now to get out that gun?
16: I thought it wouldn't be necessary.
25: Yeah, but it is, huh? Very. You'll never use it. You
5: think I came here alone?
16: I think you're bluffing. Wait and see. Sorry, I can't. <laughs>
5: You try a bluff and it doesn't work, but something else does. Right on top of the shot, Vera's
25: body jerks like a monkey on a string. And then the string breaks. You swing around and standing behind you in the doorway is Stephen Kane. The
5: only motion is the smoke swirling up from the nose of the gun in his hand. You know how he got here. He followed you. She had it on her terms long enough. Now it's on mine. You switch your eyes from him to the twisted body on the
20: floor. The sophisticated lady. time,
5: listen to another suspenseful adventure with America's number one selling mystery character, Mickey Spillane's exciting, That Hammer Guy. Larry Haynes is Mike Hammer with Jan Miner as Vera. All names and places in this story were fictitious, and any similarity to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. The Mickey
6: Spillane mystery, That Hammer Guy, is a Moss and Lewis production, written by Ed Adamson and directed by Richard Lewis. Ed Vlad speaking.
4: Sophisticated Lady, an episode of That Hammer Guy from the spring of 1953 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Somebody must have been doing focus groups or some other kind of audience research long before it was fashionable. Because in 1943... When the series Mr. Keen, Tracer of Lost Persons, moved from a a three-times-a-week, 15-minute show to a weekly half-hour, it abandoned the issue of missing persons and embraced the murder mystery. The word murder was, in fact, in the title of nearly every episode, so somebody must have figured out that murders sold better than disappearances. Here's a mystery from the tail end of World War II, The Ides of March, 1945. It doesn't have murder in the title, but, well, you'll hear. It's called The Case of the Absent-Minded Professor, and it comes from CBS and Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons.
7: It's time now for Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. gentlemen, Colin O's Toothpaste presents Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. One of the most famous characters of American fiction and one of radio's most thrilling dramas. Tonight and every Thursday at the same time, the famous old investigator takes from his file and brings to us one of his most celebrated missing person cases. Mr. Keene, tracer of lost persons, who brings us the case of the absent-minded professor. Our story opens one evening in New York in the home of Dr. Roland Barton, professor of English literature at Harvard University. As he sits before the fireplace with his wife, Julia, he asks, Julia, my
0: dear, are you sure you're feeling all right now?
19: Oh, perfectly, Roland. Do stop
16: passing. And read me another little poem. You read so beautifully.
0: Well, let have a look at this collection Oh, here's one, just a thing. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies.
24: Oh, how lovely.
0: You know, my dear, the first thing that struck me about you was the way you walk, talked, and looked. me, <laughs> darling,
16: I'm not exactly young anymore. I wonder whether you really are happy
8: here.
0: Why not? With such a beautiful wife and a lovely stepdaughter like Joan, my dear, you look very sleepy. I, I think you'd better get to bed.
24: Really, I'm perfectly all
0: right. All right? Why, you gave Joan and me the fright of our lives at dinner tonight.
16: No more talk about that. It's not really very poetic, the way I keep getting those attacks of indigestion. Well,
0: thank heavens Joan brought you your medicine in time. And tomorrow I'm finally taking you to the doctor.
16: Perhaps. But right now I'd love to hear a poem. That little thing by
26: Harry.
0: Hmm? Harry? Who's
16: Herrick? <laughs> you aren't the absent-minded professor. Robert Herrick, the
0: Cavalier poet.
16: You've been lecturing on him for 20 years,
0: you know. Oh, yes, yes. Herrick, Herrick, g- g- gather ye rosebuds.
14: Yes, yes, yeah, that's yes.
0: <laughs> Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-fly. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow, will be dying. Julia. She's dozed off. Julia, dear, don't you hear me? Heavens she's turned so ghastly pale. Julia! I'm shaking you, don't you feel it? Something's happened to her. Joan, come here, quickly. Joan! It's
17: not with Dr.
0: about? Your mother, she's dozed off here. I can't bring her to.
17: Mother? Mother? Well, she doesn't seem to be breathing at all.
0: Julia! Julia! I think...
17: I think she's
0: dead. <gasps> Joan, my dear, tell me,
17: yes?
0: just what was that medicine you gave on mother tonight?
7: And now, a week later, the doorbell of the Barton home is rung by a slight elderly gentleman. Yeah? Is this the Barton home? Who wants to
28: know? My name is Keene. Here's my card. Oh, yeah. Everybody knows about you, Mr. Keene. I was asked to come here by Miss Joan Gardner. She's uh, Professor Barton's stepdaughter. Don't I know it? may I come in? Mr.
17: Keene? Mr. Keene? Miss
28: Gardner, I
7: presume? Yes. Do come in. Oh, one second. I don't know. It's
17: my right to talk to Mr. Keene if I want. to. I'll not have you standing there like a watchdog. Okay. Okay.
8: Come,
17: Mr. Keene. Let's go to the library. As you wish. Here. This way. Oh, but, Jim, this is all so horrible.
28: Steady, my dear. That
17: man at the door, his name is Lonegan. He's a detective from the New York police.
28: So I gather.
17: He's around here all day, poking into every closet. The way he keeps staring at me. The way everybody does. Jim, <laughs> my
28: dear, I'm here to help you. Let's have the whole story.
17: It's my mother. She died a week ago.
28: So I read in the papers. But you tell me how it happened.
17: Well, Mr. Keyes, I should explain that Mother was subject to attacks of acute indigestion. That night at dinner, it happened again. Professor Barton, he's my stepfather.
28: Yes, go on.
17: He asked me to run and get Mother's medicine.
28: What sort of medicine?
17: It was a powder for indigestion. She kept a small jar of it in the bathroom. I did just what Mother always did herself. I got two large spoonfuls of it, poured them into a glass of water. I brought it back to Mother. gave it to her myself. And then? Two hours later, she died in her chair. I see. The doctor thought it all very unusual. Next day, he had the medicine and the jar analyzed. And? Something else had got mixed into the jar. A sleeping powder, a very powerful one. I've given Mother enough to kill five people.
28: One moment. How did that sleeping powder get into the house?
17: That was Mother's tweet. How they ever got mixed up, I don't know. Well,
28: yeah, my dear, accidents will happen.
17: Accidents? They're saying it was no accident at all.
28: What have the police said to you?
17: Oh, I can't bear this. I wish I'd never been born.
28: Joan, Joan, come back.
0: I've got to go after. I beg your pardon. Uh, the young lady... Oh, oh yes, my stepdaughter. He? Then you must
28: be Professor Barton. That's right.
0: I, I believe we've met before. Yes, you're
28: Harold Vanderbrook of Yale. No, no, I'm... You know, uh... a paper on the Elizabethan court? No, no, my name is Keene. I'm an investigator. Mm-hmm. Keene. Oh, yes, yes. Joan said she was sending for you. Poor girl. She's in a very bad frame of mind.
0: Yes, I, uh, I know that. Mr. Keene, would you step back into the library with
28: me? Yes, of course. I did understand a certain amount of self-reproach, but the way she's taking this, why... Well, was... you see there are certain reasons.
0: My poor wife a very rich woman. left a very large estate. Really? Under her will, I've inherited some $50,000 myself. And Joan, five times as much. Oh. To make matters worse, Joan and her mother were... not on good terms. What was the trouble, if I may ask? Well, Joan recently became obsessed, Mr. Keene, with a young scoundrel by the name of... Oh, yes, Frank Lawrence. Frank Lawrence. He taught chemistry for a while at the university, but Joan's mother did not
28: approve of him.
0: May I ask why? Well, Lawrence was up to his ears in debt. Last year, the university discharged him. Joan's mother felt he was interested in Joan, only for her money. Did, uh, did Lawrence visit here? Yes, Mr. Keene, much against the wishes of Joan's mother... The last time was. Yes.
28: The day before Julia died. I see. Mm-hmm. Professor, where was Mrs. Barton's medicine usually kept? In the hall, uh, a place of common access.
0: I, uh. Please, Mr. King, I'm not making charges against anybody. You'll excuse
28: me now. I, I think I'd better go. Yes, of course. Sir. Now, don't bother showing me to the medicine closet. I'll find a way. Down the hall. Glad to have met you, Vanderbilt. Keen is the name.
0: Oh, oh yes, yes.
28: Keen. Well, this a situation. Mr. Keen. Yes? I'm the housekeeper here, Mrs. Gleason. Well, I just heard you talking with Professor Barton. So I was, Mrs. Gleason. Are you going ahead with this case? Are you going to investigate? If Miss Gardner still wants me to. Well, if you want my opinion. Yes? There's plenty to investigate. What do you mean by that? Find out for yourself. Come in. Oh, good morning, Mike.
7: Good morning, boss. Well, sure as my name is Michael Clancy, I've been from one end of this town to the other in the tale of this Frank Lawrence. He gets around to plenty of bars and gambling joints. Any luck, Mike? Well, a fellow at the university gave me a tip on one of the reasons they fired Lawrence last year. It means he was tied up with some dope ring. Yes, mm-hmm. the
5: eye never did get the goods on him, but uh, he was supposed to be using his knowledge as a chemist.
8: Hmm.
28: Anything more?
5: Well, yes, sir. One night in the bar, Mr. Keene, he got lit up and started talking about how rich he was going to be. His exact words were Yes. But he says
28: one of these days the old lady'll cash in and so will I. Quite a ruffian. Do mm. you have his address, Mike? Yes, sir. Right here. Thank you, Mike. I'm going right over there. Oh, so you're Mr. Keene and you're Frank Lawrence. Very interesting situation. The master detective faces the master criminal. They size each other up, ready for the duel to death. Never mind the comedy, Lawrence. You're in a bad spot and you know it. Could be. You were heard expressing hope that Mrs. Barton would die. That's a lie. I have witnesses who say it isn't. Well, what do you want, Keene? An honest statement from you before I turn my information over to the police. I'm trying to to you. Are you? And listen to this. Somebody else in that house stood to profit from Mrs. Barton's death. I know. Professor Barton. He told me so himself. I mean Mrs. Gleason. The housekeeper? Yes. She'd worked for Mrs. Barton 20 years. Mrs. Barton was going to leave her $10,000. A lot of money for a housekeeper. May I use your phone? Help yourself.
17: Hello?
28: Is Miss Joan Gardner there? Speaking. Oh, this is Mr. Keene. Oh, I've
17: been wondering about you, Mr. Keene. Has anything turned up? Have you been able to... Something
28: quite important, my dear. I want to drop over and have a talk with your housekeeper. Mrs.
17: Sleason, she isn't here.
28: No? She was
17: taken ill three days ago, very sudden.
28: Oh, she's ill?
17: She decided to go off to the home of her sister.
28: Joan, can you get me her sister's address?
17: Well, it's around somewhere, Mr.
28: Sleason. Get it for me at once. This is vitally important.
7: Mr. Keene has hurried to the house where Mrs. Gleason, the housekeeper, is ill. Good morning. Oh, it's you
28: again, Mr. Keene. And you again, Detective Lunigan, Homicide Squad. Right. What brings you here? The same thing, I imagine, has brought you here. I understand Mrs. Gleason, the Barton housekeeper, is here at her sister's home and very sick. More than that. (laughs) It happened early this morning case you might say of
7: lightning striking twice if you mean was there foul play was she murdered was she i was just talking to the doctor she died of typhoid fever typhoid
28: a natural death yes perfectly natural but but what mr king but at a very unnatural time
0: Good morning, Professor Barton. Hmm? Oh, well, I say it's Professor Greenwood of Princeton. Oh no, no. My name... I was is... reading your book on Chaucer only last week, and I must say... My name I... is
28: Keen. K-E-E-N. Oh, yes, yes, the detective chap. Well, is there anything new for you? I'm rather worried about your stepdaughter. About Joan... And so am I. And I thought just as a precaution... Professor
21: Barton, uh, begging your pardon. Yes,
28: ma'am?
21: A telephone call for you from Dr. Holmes at the university. Yes.
0: Ma'am. Will you excuse me, Mr. Keene? Of course. If you want to see Joan, meanwhile, she's in her study. That's the first door to the right.
28: Good. I do want to see her. The
0: yes, door
28: to the right. Oh, uh, Joan. 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 me knock?
17: I, I was writing a letter.
28: A letter? Or something else?
17: I don't understand what you mean. Really, the way people stare at me these days. The things they talk about behind my back.
28: Joan, my dear. Yes? I want you to make me a promise. What? That you will give up this idea of committing suicide.
17: Suicide? Why, Mr. King, all I was doing was writing a letter to a friend. May I look at that letter? No. No, it, it's very personal.
28: Joan, I know how badly you feel about your mother's death. Everybody's
17: turned on me. Even Frank Lawrence, he hasn't come near me
28: once. But let me say just this. I, for one, don't feel you had any responsibility for your mother's death.
17: I gave her that drug.
28: You were the unwitting instrument of some other person. Mother,
17: of whom? Of whom?
28: I'll find out sooner or later. I was hoping to get a little help from Mrs. Leeson, but unfortunately... Yes? She died early today. Typhoid fever.
17: Oh, dear Lord, I was so very fond
28: of Are you fond of Professor Barton, too?
17: Naturally, Mr. King. He's always been such a dear. How oh, long were
28: he and your mother married, Jones?
17: Two years. Did
28: you happen to know where he taught before he came here to New York?
17: Yes, Marlowe State College out west. Why do you ask?
28: Simply a routine check, Jones. Uh, was he ever married before?
17: Yes first wife died too. But Mr. Steen, if you've got any idea Professor Barton is a sinister old murderer. Why she's the gentlest thing alive.
28: Yes, that's what everyone says. That's what everyone says.
5: Why, yes, Mr. Steen, I remember Professor Barton very well. We both joined the English department here at Marlowe State College the same year.
28: What was your impression of him, Professor Murray?
0: Charming fellow. I liked him very much. Excellent, teacher. My contacts with him were all professional. His closest friend here was actually Dr. Montgomery. Montgomery. Yes, yes. yes. A well-known bacteriologist.
28: Oh, yes, yes. I've heard of him. Is Dr. Montgomery still here at Marlowe? Oh, yes, yes. Heading a graduate section now. Uh, something else, sir. Do you happen to remember Professor Barton's wife, Alice Barton? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thing, always ailing. What was her trouble? Asthma, I believe. Asthma? Is yes. that what she died of? No, Mr. Keene. What then? Pneumonia, as I remember. Virus pneumonia. Oh. As it carried her away in two days. In other words, she died a natural death. <laughs> of oh. uh, course. One thing more. Uh, where did Professor Barton teach before he came here? Would you remember that? Oh, yes, yes at Grant University. made quite a reputation there for his research on the Cavalier Poets during the reign oh, of... Oh, thank the... you, Professor. Grant University. I shall go there next.
0: Oh, yes, Mr. Key. We had Professor Barton here at Grant University for all of ten years. We were sorry to lose him. He was such a fine man. Why did he leave, Professor Robert? Well, he had a better offer from Marlowe State College. Besides,
28: he needed a change. He was so broken up at the time by the death of Helen. Helen? Yes, his wife. His wife? I've known the Mrs. Julia Barton and the Mrs. Alice Barton, but no, no, this was Helen. And she died here? Of what? Well, now, let me
0: see. Uh, she
28: was ill quite a long time. It was something quite unusual. Can you remember specifically? Uh, oh, yes. Yes, cholera. Cholera. It isn't often that one runs across a case of that, Mr. Keene. I was so struck at the time. And so, my dear professor, am I. Well, boss, I'm glad to see you back at the office. The work has suddenly piled up while you were gone. I'm sorry, Mike. I didn't think it was going to take so long. Did you discover anything on your trip, west? Not as far as the eye could see. And what does that mean, sir? Just what it says, Mike. Ridden. Nothing but ridden. Any word from Joan Gardner while I was gone? If she phoned three times this morning. Nothing special. Just asked for you, Mr. Keene. Mike, I'm going to the Barton home at once. Well, what for, sir? In this case, there's been one natural death after another. I'm going to interfere for once with the course of nature. <laughs> Good evening, Mary.
21: Good evening, sir. Is
28: Professor Barton at home? No,
21: sir. He went to the university. On a
28: Saturday evening?
21: He had an appointment there with Dr. Holmes, I believe.
28: some oh, He's on the medical faculty, isn't he? Uh,
21: I wouldn't know, sir.
28: Well, I'd like to see Miss Joan, then.
21: Please come in. Miss Jones in her room. She and Professor Barton had some tea there before he went out. Okay. I'll go and tell her you're here.
28: I'll go right along with you, if you don't mind.
21: This way. You seem awfully worried, Mr. Keene.
28: Yes, I am.
24: Uh,
27: oh, she's laying down
24: for a nap. Joan. Joan. Why, but she's thinking, think? dear.
28: Joan, wake up. Can't you hear me? Joan, open your eyes.
19: Oh, Mr. Keene, look at this. On the night table. the note. Mr. Keene,
28: I cannot bear all the... All the talk, and doing the only possible thing, taking my life.
20: Dead. She's dead.
28: Good evening, Professor Barton. Hmm? Oh, it's you, Kim. What are you doing here in my library? waiting for you. I have very bad news. And what do you mean? Look at this note.
8: I'm
28: there. Good heavens. Horrible. How did she do it? With the same drug that killed her mother.
0: With a girl of her age, so pretty and charming, everything to live
28: for. Why? Why? The note explains itself. self reproach for her mother's death. Oh,
8: this-
28: It'll start house one death, and then a second so soon after,
0: there's a curse on me.
28: More than two deaths. You're forgetting Mrs. Gleason. Yes, And if we go back into ancient history... I don't follow. You seem to have been cursed twice before, my dear Professor. You're referring to the fact that I was married twice before. And that both ladies, in their turn, also died. You see, I'm a very unfortunate man, a veritable angel of death. Alice died of pneumonia. Perfectly <laughs> natural death. As far as the eye can see. Helen died of cold, And Mrs. Gleason, the housekeeper of typhoid. All natural death. Professor Barton, may I offer a theory? Yes. Yes, of course. In a modern city like New York, typhoid is not very usual. Natural, but not usual. How did Mrs. Gleason get typhoid? By catching it, I suppose. I don't know. Or could it be that somebody deliberately dropped a culture of typhoid germs into the pot of coffee she left for herself on the gas range? Um, Same. Your second wife, Alice Barton, died of pneumonia. But she had long suffered from asthma. Yes, a very pernicious form. One that required hypodermic injections daily. Injections that she trusted her husband to give. You are insinuating, Mr. Keen, that I substituted the pneumonia germs? One of the first. Barton. Wouldn't she have caught cholera, also unusual, from a cup of tea, into which cholera germs have been caught? Mr. Keene, I'm a professor of English literature. What would I know about germs? Where would I get them? Professor Barton, I was struck by a curious fact. What is that? Wherever you have taught your closest friend has not been a man in your own field, literature, but in another, bacteriology. At Marlowe College, it was Professor Montgomery. Here, it has been Dr. Hall. Well? You were constantly visiting them in their laboratory. always dropping in for a chat. That proves nothing. But here's another fact. In every case where one of these women died a natural death, so-called, a culture of germs disappeared a few days before from the laboratory of the university where you were teaching. Oh.
0: How did you ever find that?
28: Simply. Laboratory assistants are required to keep a constant inventory of all germ cultures. If any are missing, it must be recorded in the book. You make me sound like a bluebird. Exactly what you are. You killed each of your three wives for money. Mrs. Leeson, the housekeeper, went because she began to suspect you. Joan, for the same reason. But my dear fellow, Joan left the suicide note. Yes. And that rather knocks your whole theory sky high. Mm. That suicide note was written a week ago. I talked to Joan and made her change her mind. But she was careless enough to leave that note around for you to pick up. Most then just a few hours ago you went in to have tea with her, overpowered her, forced her to drink that drug. Am I right? Now you let me ask the question.
0: What are you going to do about it? There's a policeman outside, waiting to arrest you. You, you put me in mind of a lovely little poem by Richard Lovelace. Stone walls do not a prison mate. nor iron bars a key. Go ahead, arrest me, put me on trial. Your theories won't stand up in the court for a moment. I'll bring a hundred character witnesses from every walk of life. And
28: I'll go free because you have nothing but theories to offer.
0: Nothing but theories.
28: Professor Barton, will you do me just one favor? What is it? Open the library door just behind me. What for? Open Please.
8: Very well, Mr.
28: Keene. Joan. You tried
0: to murder me. Joan, look here, you I... Of course, that drug down my
8: throat.
17: If he hadn't come here in time, if he hadn't called a doctor, told him
8: what the drug was. You're horrible!
28: Horrible! President Barton, anything to say now, before I turn you over to the police? Perhaps I can suggest something to you.
4: Mm. Then
28: there's, there's an old saying that fate finally catches up with a scoundrel. Now, Detective Lunigan,
5: we're ready for you. Mm.
7: So, Mr. Keene concludes the case of the absent-minded professor. You have been listening to Mr. Keene, tracer of Lost Persons, on the air every Thursday at this time. Don't miss Mr. Keene next Thursday when the kind, the old tracer turns to the case of the blood-stained piece of tin. Mr. Larry Elliott saying goodbye for Mr. Keene and the Whitehall Pharmacal Company, makers of Kalanose toothpaste and tooth powder. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
4: The case of the absent-minded professor from the last week of the last winter of World War II and the series, Mr. Keene, Tracer of Lost Persons. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. For some people, this coming Friday, January 8th, will be special, as it is every year, because it's the birthday of the American singing star, Elvis Presley. It's an index of his stardom and his achievement that during his lifetime there was an extensive radio biography series about the King, as he was known. It was produced 50 years ago and syndicated, mostly to AM radio stations, by Watermark Incorporated, and it was narrated by Wink Martindale. The 12 hour series was expanded to 13 hours and rebroadcast in 1975. Upon Mr. Presley's death in 1977, the series was hastily re-edited and revived again. In honor of Elvis Presley's birthday this week, we've chosen some brief excerpts of the first hour of that series, concentrating on his youth in Mississippi and his coming of age in Memphis. As broadcast in 1971, here are those excerpts of Hour 1, Early Beginnings, of the Elvis Presley story.
11: The Elvis Presley story has a humble beginning on January 8, 1935 in a small cotton town called East Tupelo, Mississippi, where Gladys Presley was a $13 a week sewing machine operator, and her husband Vernon was a poor sharecropper. As a child in Tupelo, Elvis' best friend was Guy Harris.
9: Elvis had him a uh, guitar and uh, not at all times, but uh, several occasions. He would uh, get his guitar out, and we'd get out and on the street. Shade tree there somewhere, and he would sing these different songs, you know. And I guess it's just one of these cheap jobs, probably his dad picked up farming five and ten cents store, something like that. He always, to me, seemed like that he was real interested in music. And when we'd go to church, which is a little church across from where my mom lives out there in East Chippewa now, uh, he would sing along, you know, we'd all go and you know how kids would do, sing along with the choir and stuff like that. My
5: name is Walter Duncan. I pastored the First Assembly of God Church in the city of Tupelo, 15 and a half years. Assemblies of God believe the Bible is the inspired and only infallible and authoritative Word of God. There is one God eternally existent in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost.
11: began to sing in school, impressing his fifth grade teacher so much she entered him in a contest at the Mississippi Alabama Fair and Dairy Show. He won second prize, $5. When he was 13, Elvis and his parents moved to Memphis in search of better times. The Presleys were asked to pay $30 a month rent for their two bedroom apartment. Mr. Presley worked in a nearby factory as a laborer, Mrs. Presley as a cafeteria worker and as a seamstress, while Elvis walked to classes
9: at Humes High School and played in the neighborhood with his new friends. It's Buzzy Forbes. I work at Memphis Light, Gas and Water. I'm assistant supervisor. It's a close friend of Elvis's when was going to high school. I guess 80% of the people there were either from broken homes or from uh, widowed families. And of course, what you had there was a bunch of kids that helped raise themselves. Now, the surrounding neighborhood, of course, it was a lot of uh, beer joints and dives around there. There was... uh, places where people get cut up every now and then, up on Main Street. The poor but, theaters, this sort of stuff. I mean, not. Uh, yeah. Another old Memphis neighbor of Elvis' Doris
11: Shrewsbury. Now Mrs. Cecil Blackwood.
16: One thing was his consistency in attending Sunday School. He was there every Sunday. His mother had many friends in the church at that time, and everyone thought of Mrs. Presley as a spiritual,
13: uh, a very devout person.
11: One of Elvis's favorite singing groups during his early Memphis years was a gospel quartet called The Statesman. Often he'd attend their all-night sings at the Memphis Auditorium. The lead singer of The Statesman at the time, Jake Hess, became one of Elvis's most important vocal influences. Elvis acknowledges this. Let's listen to one of The Statesman's best-known songs, He Knows Just What I Need. Then we'll hear Elvis' own rendition of that same song, recorded many years later. Is there a similarity?
4: From the syndicated series, the Elvis Presley story in 1971, excerpts of the first installment called Early Beginnings. Elvis Presley, who passed away in 1977, would have turned 86 years old this coming Friday. It's the Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Harold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington. We're your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRU 88.3 Ocean City, on your smart speaker, and online at WAMU.org. Over the years, we've aired quite a few episodes of New World A-Coming, the series based on the book of the same name, by the journalist Roy Otley, who subtitled the work, Inside Black America. When it came to dramatizing African Americans fighting in Europe during World War II, Mr. Otley knew his subject well. He had been the first African American war correspondent to cover the fight for major American media. Appropriately enough, this installment of the radio series is called Report from the Front. It stars Canada Lee and Frederick O'Neill, who went on to become the long-serving president of Actors' Equity Association and a vice president of the AFL-CIO. The show comes from April 29, 1945, station WMCA in New York City, and the series New World A-Coming.
5: fury of the resurrection, there's a new world coming. Every Sunday at this hour, WMCA, in cooperation with the Citywide Citizens Committee on Harlem, brings you a series of vivid programs dramatizing Negro life in America based on the theme of Roy Otley's book, New World, A Coming. Today, we present Report from the Front, the dramatic eyewitness accounts of Negroes in action in the European theater of war. Starring Canada Lee, Frederick O'Neill, and Charles Perry. Written, produced, and directed by Mitchell Grayson. The other day, there was an item in the newspaper Quoting
25: General George Marshall, Chief of Staff of the United States Army. Said General Marshall, The Nazi gasoline stocks are practically dried up. The Germans haven't fueled to move supplies, let alone armored vehicles and artillery. But their supply problem is far simpler than ours, as they are of home. Replacements of tanks is also relatively easy for them. A Nazi tank seriously damaged goes to a factory not far away. But when our armor is knocked out, It is lost if it cannot be repaired on the field.
5: Repairing tanks on the field is vital to holding newly won positions gained by our victorious armies. Vital to the men who are marching ahead through town after town in the European theater of war. Vital to the final Allied victory in Europe. Today, 170 Negro soldiers of the 228th Tank Retrieving Company, are moving into battle areas under shell fire to rescue ripped open tanks, trucks, and jeeps, which they haul back behind the lines to be repaired, and then return them to combat. Here is the story of Lieutenant John M. Couch of the 228th Tank Retrieving Company, as reported from Allied Force Headquarters overseas. Uh,
3: I'm from Chicago. I used to be a postal clerk in the daytime. At night, I was a pre-med student at Northwestern University. Well, that was before I was assigned to the 228 tank retrievers. I had plenty of stories to tell about our outfit. one's about as important as the other, but there was a time when two platoons of the company were sent to southern France to retrieve 7th Army tanks.
5: We worked on the battle lines near the Swiss border. We were driving our 45-ton trucks. Those trucks are as large as a suburban bungalow.
3: We're searching the roads. That road ahead of us with fallen tanks. Hey, Lieutenant. Hey, yes, Sergeant. What's that up ahead of us?
23: Where? Just off the side of the road, straight ahead of us, here. Here, look for, our, look for these binoculars.
15: Hey, looks like a few tanks. Yeah, well, what's on them? Stars or swastikas? Stars? Well, oh, let's race out there and get them. Hey, Sergeant. Yeah?
3: No? Say, I wonder what's up. Looks like it may be a trap. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that myself. Say, look at our men. They're being forced to retreat beyond that hill. The Germans must have us outnumbered.
5: What do you think we ought to do? See, we counted 15 damaged American tanks on this road. Is that right? Yes, sir.
3: I'll give you one guess what we'll do. Okay, sir. Signal the other trucks behind us to get those tanks picked up and loaded aboard. Yes, sir. We've got 15 tanks to save no time to lose. Hop to it. Lieutenant, look. What's up? German troops coming up from the other side of the hill. Great Scott. What's your order, sir? They're marching on foot. Infantrymen. I don't see any mechanized troops, do you? No, sir. They're just marching. See, I uh, judged they're about a mile and a half away. Yes, sir. Well, what are we waiting for? We just wasted 15 seconds talking.
18: <laughs> well, I'm here to tell the story, so I guess you
29: must know what happened. We got those 15 tanks off the road in exactly 10 minutes.
3: And while we were sweating it out, we could see the Jerrys advancing on us. They tried shooting at us, but they didn't get a single one of us. They didn't get our tanks either. <laughs> kind of proud of my outfit.
5: In the 11 months that we've been overseas, we Negroes and the 228th Tank Retrieving Company have hauled back 2,000 tanks for salvage and repairs. That's not counting the German armor and other equipment we picked up for bomb rallies in the United States. Well, all in all, this amounted to about. 64,000 tons of tanks saved from falling into the hands of the Germans. And the estimated cost
3: of these tanks is about 70 million dollars. And all of it without losing a single man in our company. That <laughs> day it's a record we're all mighty proud of.
5: soldiers are not only salvaging tanks and mechanized equipment for our armies abroad, but they are also fighting in tank units attacking the fascist armies on the field of battle. One such unit is the 761st Tank Battalion, fighting somewhere on the Western Front under the direct command of pistol and General George S. Patton, Jr. A few days ago, Lieutenant William E. Blake of Atlantic City, New Jersey, a former member of the 761st Tank Battalion, was in Washington. Recalling how he was wounded while dashing across southern France with General Patton's Third Army.
29: We knew General Patton needed our tanks, and we've been trying for days to catch up with him. When we were assigned to the Third Army, the morale of our men went sky high, and we set out at once to join it. A few days later, however, we are
18: all in the dumps.
29: Ah, what's the use of going on, Bill? He's too far ahead of us. We'll never catch up to him.
18: Yeah, he's traveling so fast, he'll be in Berlin before we can catch up with the on Army.
29: I know. I know how you feel, fellas. But what do we do? Anyone have any suggestions? We'll wear out our tanks before we catch up with that gang of fast rollers. Well, let's not moon about it. I think I'll hand in my resignation from this war. I'm going to resign. Now, what's striking you, Johnny? Now here we get the best assignment in this whole war. We get orders to join General Patton's Third Army. So what happens? We start out to meet him. And we find that he's moving so fast, we can't even catch up with him. I want to resign. Don't be a comedian, Johnny. Wait a minute. I just got an idea. Yeah, what? I uh, don't keep us in suspense. Spill it. Come on, come on out with it. Take a look at our tanks. What do you see? Tanks? No, I'm serious. Look, fellas. We've been making 50 to 60 miles a day. That's because we've been traveling with our steel combat tracks on. We could make 90 to 100 miles a day if we took those steel tracks off and put on our fast rubber tracks. Hey, that is a idea. Certainly. That's one way to catch up with those two ivory-handled pistols. What do you say? Should we change the rubber tracks? Listen, man, I'm changing mine right now. Let's all change yeah, yeah, come on. And then race like hell and catch them. <laughs> I never dreamed that any army could move so fast while fighting, but General Patton's 3rd Army did. And we actually did 90 to 100 miles a day when we finally overtook him. They say at one time, headquarters had to drop maps to General Patton by plane, because the 3rd Army ran off the maps that they started with, and no one from headquarters was able to catch up with the general on the ground. When finally, the men of the 761st Tank Battalion caught up with General Patton, He was waiting impatiently for supplies at Nancy, France. We were in battalion formation when the order was given to man all guns. Suddenly a bunch of jeeps loaded with MPs and 50-cal machine guns rolled in and took up strategic positions. Something was in the wind. We didn't know quite what. But whatever it was, it was important. Suddenly a single jeep came dashing up and stopped beside an armored scout car. A three-star general jumped from the jeep and vaulted up on the hood of the armored car. And when I saw his two ivory-handled pistols, I knew I was looking at Lieutenant General George S. Patton, Jr.
15: Now,
25: I'm not going to waste any words. I'm going to tell you what we intend to do and expect you to do it. We're on our way to Germany, and I'm backing on you men of the 761st to help the 3rd Army get there. Now, I don't care what color any man is, As long as he gets out there and kills those dirty rats in the green suit, That's all I want to
29: say. Good luck. I'll see you when the battle's over. It, It all seems like a dream now that I look back on it. When General Patton struck at a town 3,000 yards from the German border, I was a liaison officer between the 26th Infantry Division, known as the Yankees, and a company of tanks from my battalion attached to the New Englanders for support. When we entered the city, I was located in a building that was between me and a d- direction from which Jerry's artillery shells were coming. Then I received orders to report to the regimental command post for instructions. It was pitch dark. And the only way I could find my way up the streets was by hugging the building as I went along. Well, just as I got outside my building, a German shell landed on the outskirts of the village. Well, this made me feel pretty good, for I figured Gary didn't have the range yet, and I'd be able to make it to the command post before he got it. But I guess I was wrong. I heard a bomb scream over my head, and I flattened out on the ground, close beside the building. The shell landed on top of the building, and a big pile of debris fell in the middle of my back as I lay there. The concussion stunned me, and I lay there for quite a while. Finally, I got myself together and began crawling onto the command post. I decided it would be best if I didn't tell anyone about my injury. I didn't want to be separated from my outfit on its way to Berlin. I wouldn't risk being sent to a hospital behind the lines while the foes of my outfit headed east through Germany. Well, a tank outfit fights for two days, and then it needs a third day to make repairs. Say, hey,
3: what do you think of this outfit, Bill, now that we... In the thick of it. It's
29: what we've been wanting all along. Well, did you ever think it would turn out this way? What do you mean? Fighting with General Patton? Uh-huh. Sure I did, if we ever caught up with him.
3: I just finished a letter to my folks back home. Gonna drop it off at the next mail station if we get time to stop for a minute.
29: Your family and mine ought to be plenty proud of what's happened to our particular outfit. Did you tell them about what old Blood and Gut said? No,
5: no. I'm gonna save that until I get a <laughs> That's That story's gotta be told face to face. But I did tell him though, about, uh, how we were sent out to take the pressure off the fighting, fighting that near Baston there yesterday.
3: Told him how we moved so fast and fought so often that one time we had only nine out of 54 tanks ready to fight. <laughs> no gentle Patton call for that
29: nine. We give
9: them to it. Say, yes. Yes.
29: Am I seeing things? Or are those the fourth armored tanks coming toward us?
9: Say, that's the fourth armored division, all right.
29: Why, just yesterday they were sent out to spare the attack on the Jerrys. And now they're coming back as we're going up. That's funny, isn't it?
3: Hey, there's a tankman just up. Let's go and ask him what's up. Yeah, come on.
29: What happened to the 4th Armor? What'd you say? I said, what's happened to the 4th Armor? Are you retreating? Retreating? <laughs> we never heard of that word before. We blasted the town 15 miles up ahead of the front. Then we turned around and came back to help you guys as you went into the frontal attack. Hey, that's terrific strategy.
3: It sure is. And boy, we're in a terrific outfit.
29: For a total of eight days, I managed to keep up with the grueling advances of General Patton's forces. Then it happened. I fell on the side of the road with a stinging pain in my spine, exhausted. Uh, <laughs> easy there, easy
25: there. You're a Euro right now. Euro, brother. Where am I? You're in an American field hospital. Your division went on ahead without you. You've been badly hurt. What? What what do you say? Who are you? I'm a doctor attached to the medical corps. Captain Gardner is my name. What happened to me, sir? Well, you suffered some serious injuries to your spinal column. You're going to be evacuated to a hospital far behind the line. Evacuate? Yes, Lieutenant Blake. We're planning to send you to the hospital at Rans. You'll be there for a little while, and then you'll be flown to England. Possibly after that, you'll be taken back to the United States we have seen all of this war that you're going to see. As a matter of fact, from now on, you're out of it.
29: So I'm back in the States now, on leave from Camp Pickett, Or I'm still receiving hospital care and
15: treatment.
29: In the past couple of weeks, I've been reading in the papers what General Patton's armored troops have been doing. I guess you have too. I'm sorry I'm not back there fighting with them. But one thing I'm glad of Negroes are fighting in the tank battalions and are doing a fine job. There's no color discrimination in that division. A white soldier's life depends on the fighting ability of a Negro soldier, vice versa. Together, this war is being fought by colored and white Americans. And together, we're going to make sure to share the victory. Was the story of Lieutenant William E. Blake of Atlantic City, New Jersey, a former member of the 761st Tank Battalion, attached to General Patton's Third Army? Negroes are today fighting in all branches of the armed
5: services tanks, infantry, Navy, and Air Force. When Roy Otley, the author of New World of Coming, returned to the United States after his roving assignment
29: as war correspondent for the newspaper PM, he told of an incident which happened in the Mediterranean theater of war. An incident which that time has since been told and retold by the men in the service fighting on the Italian front. Here's the story.
5: There's an inspiring story making the rounds of the European Battlefront today. It's, it's the story of the Red Tails, an all-Negro fighting group with top-notch morale, which has run up an enviable record in sky battles from North Africa to Germany. I've seen hundreds of silver-colored planes with glistening red tails sparkling in the sun, ...swooping gracefully out of the bright blue sky, peeling downward at tremendous speed... ...and with sputtering blasts from their high-powered engines... straighten out to land on makeshift dirt runways somewhere in the Adriatic. The Red Tails are the all-Negro fighter group of the 15th Air Force. Commanded by Colonel Benjamin Davis, Jr., son of Brigadier General Davis... ...the highest-ranking Negro officer in the United States Army. The Red Tails flying P-51 Mustangs have blasted enemy targets from North Africa to France from Italy to Yugoslavia, Hungary, and Germany, escorting bombers to targets in Cloesti, Sofia, Salerno, Friedrichshaven, and Munich. In one day alone, they had gone up nine times on nine successful bombing missions and returned to win the commendation of General Montgomery. The main task of this fighter group has been to protect our bombers against enemy fighters. They fly as a protective wing, in front, behind, and on the sides of the great American bomber fortresses. Returning from a mission over southern France one day, a red-tailed flyer noticed a crippled bomber limping homeward. The men in the bomber, ten of them, were all white flyers.
3: Inside the bomber, they were deciding what to do about their ship. Captain, I've just been out there on the wing of the plane. Those two motors have been badly damaged by enemy flak. They won't hold up much longer. Pretty bad, huh? Yes, sir. Yeah.
29: We're losing speed. It'd be an easy target if any jerry showed up,
3: suddenly. So yeah. They blow us to
29: kingdom come, sir. There are only two
3: things we can do under the circumstances. Yes, sir.
29: I need to bail out here on enemy territory and be captured, or we could try to limp back to our base. We're losing more speed, sir.
25: Well, ah, that's too bad. We dropped far behind the other planes on this mission. We're out here alone now. Give the order to bail out.
2: Rear gunner to pilot. Rear gunner to
29: pilot. Pilot to rear gunner. Go ahead.
2: Say, Captain, I just spotted a plane at 11 o'clock. Uh, can't make out whether it's an enemy plane or not.
29: Better not take any chances. It's probably a Jerry. If he gets too close, let him have a burst. Yes, sir. All gunners stand by. Plane approaching, 11 o'clock. Here he comes. Pilot rear gunner. How'd you make out, Shorty? I missed it. Wait a minute, hold your fire. The pilot in that plane is trying to signal. Holy mackerel, it's a red Tail fighter. One of the Negro flyers. He's rocking his wings to show us he's an American. I'll contact him through our radio. Hello? T-51 red-tail.
25: Hello, T-51 red-tail. Can you hear me? Over.
3: Yes, I can hear you pretty badly
25: shut up, aren't you? Yes. Two of our motors are out of commission. I
3: noticed you're in trouble. We're going to wait for squad to give you a hand in case the area start to attack you. I'll stick with them and give you some protection. Think you can make it back to the air base. Over. That's great. We're just going to bail out. But if you can stay with us, we'll get back to the base. OK? OK. Let's go. Go ahead, P-51. How are
29: you doing? Think you'll hold out all right? Over. It's only about another hundred miles back to the base. We've been losing more and more speed, but I think we'll just make it if nothing else interferes. Hold it just a minute. I
3: think I see something. What is the P-51? Yes, I do.
25: Well, not so good. Two Jerry planes at 4
3: o'clock coming up pretty fast. Can you handle them? I think so. I'll peel off and take care
5: of them. You keep staying on your course
3: and I'll pick you up on the way home. Okay, go to it. And good luck. Roger.
29: Out. I'm
3: with you, ain't I? You certainly are. They bothered us anymore, are they? No, they're not. And that's it. I got one, and the other
29: one turned around and went home. Thanks, buddy. You saved our
3: lives. When the bomber approached the nearest Allied base, they found they had other troubles.
5: The bomber's undercarriage had been shot away, and it was forced to crash land. Luckily, no one was hurt. When the Negro red-tailed
29: flyer landed directly behind them, and the white fellows rushed out across the field, lifted him out of his plane onto their shoulders, they started to kiss him on the cheek. Their lives were saved by this Negro red-tailed pilot.
5: true story. And here's the payoff on the Red Tails. In more than a hundred combat missions on which the Red Tails have given escort cover to their big friends, the long-range heavy bombers, they have not lost a single ship to enemy figures. A record the entire army is proud of. (laughs)
3: Listening to New World A Coming's dramatization Report from the Front, written, produced, and directed by Mitchell
29: Grayson, and starring Canada Lee, Charles Perry, and Frederick O'Neill. Others in the cast today included Fred Carter, Don Gibson, John Adair, and Paul Mann. We invite you to be with us again next Sunday at 3 past 3, when we will again present New World A Coming. Music by James Lazito was conducted by Jerry Sears. The theme song was composed by Duke Ellington. If you'd like to attend the broadcast of New World The Coming, you may obtain tickets by writing to WMCA 1657 Broadway, Zone
5: 19, New York City. And they will be forwarded to you at once. Your announcer is George Willard. This was a public service feature of WMCA.
29: of America, this is a straight from the shoulder, unvarnished appeal to you for help. As you know, thousands of American men are being wounded on far-flung battlefronts today. Every hospital overseas is filled to capacity, and casualties are now being returned to this country at the rate of more than 1,000 every day. Registered nurses are needed to care for these hospitalized men in both Army and Veteran hospitals. If you are untrained, by offering your services for even a few hours a day, You help release a trained nurse for the important work of bringing wounded men back from the battlefront. So whether you're trained or untrained, whether you're young or old, you're needed desperately to help in relieving the present nursing crisis. Won't you go to your local Red Cross chapter tomorrow and learn where
4: and how you can serve? New World Coming and A Report from the Front, broadcast just over a week before the German surrender in World War II. It's the Big Broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to close tonight's show with the man who opened it, Bob Bailey, our favorite Johnny Dollar. Years before he took over that role, he had enjoyed a long run as a very different kind of investigator, George Valentine, the hero of the series Let George Do It. There couldn't be a more timely title than the one they gave this episode, Christmas in January. It comes from January 29th, 1951. The Mutual Don Lee Network and Let George Do It. Personal notice. Dangerous my stock and
6: trade. If the job's too tough for you to handle, you got a job for me, George Valentine. Write full details.
10: of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West invite you to Let George Do It. Christmas in January. Another adventure of George Valentine.
12: for a picture lady?
13: Oh, hello, buddy. Hey, how much is that one?
12: Uh,
5: this one?
13: Yeah.
5: The oil painting in the building? It's a street in Paris. Looks uh,
13: more like Oswego.
12: And uh, no, it's somewhere on the left bank, I presume. You see, the painter uh, lived Never in, uh, mind the
13: travel notes, Jack. Just how much, huh?
12: Well, I'm afraid it's probably a good
6: deal more than you could afford, sister.
13: Uh, buddy, you see that big white convertible out there at the curb?
6: Huh? Well, is it yours? Oh, well, uh, no, I didn't mean it. Exactly
13: what do I got to would... do? Wear tights? Uh, the name's Charity Dufresne. I'll buy you a seeing-eye dog. Oh,
5: Mr. Dufresne.
8: Yeah.
5: Oh, I'm awfully sorry. Gosh, I've even got
27: pin-ups of you myself. Holy smoke. I guess I've seen every one of your pictures three or four times. Well, I... then you
13: should pay more attention it. to details, like my face. Now, come on, fan club, how much, huh?
6: Huh? Or the picture. Well, uh, look, if it's for your own house, I mean, you would. uh... Who sent you to this place?
13: Don't flatter yourself. It's a junk shop. And don't. I won't tell anybody, I want to buy a gift, that's all.
5: Oh, oh, I see. Well, uh, if you're giving it to someone you like, I... I... know
13: what kind of a picture it is. I'm giving it to somebody who should use it as a winding sheet, I
5: hope. Oh, I get it. Yeah, Yeah, it's very appropriate. It's uh, $250. Here,
13: Jesse James.
12: If you'll wait just a second, I'll wrap it up for you so nobody will notice. I'll
13: wrap it myself, thank you. I brought my own stuff. This, buddy, is gonna be something real special. You know who it's for? (laughs) An octopus. You know what it's for him for? A Christmas present. Yeah, in January. (laughs)
5: <laughs> yes, that's... that's my dear Charity. As wholesome and appetizing as a tube of ant paste. Oh, but she adores me. Worship
6: is the proper word, perhaps. She's like a yo-yo to which I hold the string. Uh, yeah, sure. But, uh, look, she got out of the car, Mr. Wick, and walked into the shop... My and... dear
7: Mr.
5: Valentine, you will keep your eye on the doings of Miss Charity Dufresne. <laughs> How about that, Miss Brooks? Did he just watch the doings, or did he let his eye wander to what's already been done by her beneficent creator? Well,
26: I was right there with him. She's very attractive, but I... I'm
5: trying to tell you what she did, Mr. Wick, if you'll just let me. like a drambuie, either one of you? The only drink worth drinking. Because like a woman, a drink should be stimulating to the senses, but easy to see through. Jokes, where's that
26: bottle of drambuy you brought to town from the hovel?
5: Uh, my country place, Mr. Lennon. Well,
26: no thanks. Really, Mr. Wick. How should
5: please... I know, boss? I've been busy with the lights. Look, Mr. Wick, I'm, I'm trying to give you a report, uh, Of will course you? you are, my dear man. Of course you are. You heard her call me an octopus, you said. <laughs>
9: Isn't that wonderful, Duke?
11: Yeah, yeah <laughs> I guess so.
9: You mean one of them things... Don't you with wish ach- you had thought of it? Dukes are so prosaic when he
5: calls me names used to be a mule skinner's apprentice, I believe. I was a male nurse. I was studying to be a pharmacist. Yes, this... yes, I... yes. Let's not bore the people, Jukes. Just run and fetch them a brandy.
27: My name is really Anthony. Of course, dear boy. They
5: understand Mr. Valentine knows a Jukes when he sees one. Oh. Now hop.
27: All right, boss. Well, so I'll see what I can find.
5: My companion. Isn't he delightful? A jester, the court fool. And I'm tied to him like a millstone. I've been ill, you know, so my wife hired him to fetch and carry. And then when I was helpless and at his mercy night and day, she ran away. Makes a rather charming story, don't you think? I call it the Frau's Revenge. Ah, yeah. I didn't even know you were married, Mr. Wick. Oh, miserably. Don't you ever read my column? (laughs) Good heavens, man, let me inform you. It's the sort of rounded anecdote Walcott would have adored. She was my secretary, you see, in years past, until in my bestial fashion, I decided I could save a good bit of expense if I married her and stopped her salary. However, fate in
6: his hairy-handed way... Never mind, never mind. I've heard enough vocabulary for one day. I'm a busy man, Mr. Wick. You don't want to check over my report? Okay, forget it. Goodbye. I could recite your stupid report by heart, Mr. Valentine.
5: I asked you to observe the suspicious actions of Mr. Frank. Look,
6: she only bought a picture. I wouldn't have taken the job if I'd have known you just wanted me to snoop. An
5: original oil painting of a Paris building and street. Now, tell me, there was a lamp in the background, wasn't there?
6: And two children
5: rolling a red... Well, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. Of course, I don't suppose you noticed the name, the artist's signature? Well,
6: it it was kind of a funny painting. Didn't mean anything to me. Something like a uh, that's all I, mean, I know. What? Oh, oh yeah.
8: Yeah.
6: <laughs> oh, Mr. Valentine.
9: Oh, my poor little yo yo will be spinning so fast, she won't know what hit
26: What on earth are you talking about, Mr. Wake? <laughs> it
9: will all be in print, dear one. I never give away the end of a story before it's written. Uh, tell me.
5: Tell me, do you think green lights will look well on a blue Christmas tree? Hmm? A what? <laughs> Mr. Valentine, you have your check. Goodbye. Out of the hovel tonight, it's Christmas, didn't you know? Yes, in January. Now, get out of here. Run along.
6: I'm a busy man. Not so fast, Buster. Not so fast, please. What's the big joke in this picture deal? What kind of a stunt are you up to? You dragged me into being a party to something. Curious, curious, curious. Life and death,
5: Mr. Valentine. The death of pride. The world is a yo-yo, didn't you know, for a man like me? (laughs) So read about it tomorrow in my obituary, column.
6: Christmas and January, yo-yos, paintings. What kind of a loony O-trio. character?
26: trio George, that's it. And he painted Paris streets and buildings. Huh? And you said she bought it for $250. Yeah, that's right. An original painting by trio Huh? Would you like to find out just what kind of a snide story Mr. Wick is getting ready to write? That I'm afraid we helped him to write? Now, look, don't rub
6: it in. What don't I know, besides everything?
26: Come on, we're going to a real art store, George. Ah. Because you want to bet the lead his story will be all about Miss Charity Dufresne buying a fraudulent painting? Well, darling, a real trio should sell for at least fifteen dollars or $20,000. And not just on Christmas.
6: 17,250. Yeah, well, look, friend, we already know that. We found it in a catalog at one of the other places we went, but uh, what we... lots of new interest in your trio right now, you know.
26: But that shop we told you about, it mm-hmm. must sell fake paintings, isn't that right?
6: It must.
12: It does. Copy and imitations. But it doesn't always bother to mark them
6: as such, well, like the one you saw. All right, uh, but, Brooksy, look, so the dame bought him a fake painting for a gift on a fake Christmas. She doesn't like him anyway. On a a, a, a fake what? Oh, well, never mind. Enough people are confused already. But look, Angel, I don't understand why that should make the old goat so happy. How my telling him about it would give him any hold over her. Uh, Mr. Valentine, i too am him an ardent reader of Francis Xavier Wick, his column, his books. He has
12: a passion for what he calls the rounded anecdote, I believe. Ah? Uh. Uh, well, I haven't the slightest idea what you're talking about, but mine is the gallery which owned the original of that Utrio painting, you know, the, the real one. Of
26: course. That's why we came here out of curiosity to confirm that price of $17,000.
12: Yes, and you leave in greater curiosity, too, young lady. And I'll be worse off than you are, because I sold that real Utrio for just that price
6: and sent it out not two minutes before you walked in to a man who phoned. The old goat himself, to Francis Xavier Wick. What? He said he wanted it wrapped as
12: a Christmas gift. He was going to present it to a woman named, uh, Charity to Friend.
6: He we're out of order. Curiosity killed a cat.
30: George, that woman's coming back. Yeah. Mr. Valentine, Mr. Crane seems to be busy right now. She's on the hall telephone, talking to an art dealer back in town. Oh,
6: yeah, well, uh, we only came out here to the Hubble to find out... Oh, if...
30: you're quite welcome. There have been guests coming and going all evening. It's Christmas here, didn't you know? How could we forget? Yeah. Mr. Wick was ill at the real Christmas time, and of course he can't celebrate it unless we... he can get out of bed, unless he can dress up as Santa Claus. Oh, well, that explains part of life. Unless he can give presents and receive them, in person. Wouldn't be Christmas without people, would it? Wouldn't be anything without people, would it? Around him all the time, his court, his fools, his... Oh, Oh, well, come in, come in. Join the party. The great man has just served liqueurs. Perhaps you'd like some. Join me in a creme de mante. Maybe you'd rather have hemlock. Oh, wait a
6: minute. Look here. We know we're prying. We only want to find... You
30: came out to warn Mr. Frayne that Mr. Wick... What he was up to, of course. Well, I'm sorry. She's already found out. She's crying with embarrassment, and she's at the telephone trying to buy the most expensive painting in the gallery for Mr. Wick. She's... Oh, it makes less and less sense. You see all the paintings around here? Mr. Frayne has bought many of them. Real ones. Thousands and thousands of dollars of gifts to him in years past. So this year, she got caught trying to give him a pony, that's all. I'm not sorry for her. I
6: get it. She hates him. But why does she give him things at all? Hey, what's he do, blackmail people?
30: Oh, oh, blackmail. Mr. Valentine, he
6: tortures people. I say, have you
12: seen him anywhere? He served the drinks and then went out for a minute, and I've got to be running back to... Oh. Mr. Uh,
30: Keller, of course I haven't seen him. I've been here for an hour myself. He hasn't even spoken to me.
10: I'm sorry, Mrs. Wick, I didn't know. Hold it, hold it, please.
5: You're Mrs. Wick?
30: Well, who did you think I was? A dear, dear friend like Mr. Keller here? Like Charity Refrain. Mr. Valentine, do you know what this man gave my husband tonight? A Cadillac.
10: If you don't mind, Mrs. Wick.
30: Oh, yes, it embarrasses him. It embarrasses all of them. Well, come in here under the Christmas tree. If you can stand the hideous green light, I'll show you the biggest pile oh, of blue.
5: Mrs.
6: Wick, ever... forget it, will you please? I'm not Christmas in even...
30: January. Christmas for Santa Claus. Diamond cigarette lighters, statues, paintings, money. And all from torture, Mr. Valentine.
26: (laughs)
13: Just lying there. I saw him just lying there. The door to the bathroom. That hideous Santa Claus.
12: Be
6: quiet, Mr. Frame. Lying on his face, the side of the door. Wink. Francis. Here, let me. I'll give you a hand. If I could turn him over, he must have fainted. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, we'd better move him. But if his pulse means anything, Santa Claus Wick is dead.
10: night's adventure of George Valentine. Francis Xavier Wick, the columnist, the gossip, the collector of rounded anecdotes. The man who this year was celebrating Christmas in January. And why? Apparently because he likes to collect presents, too. He wouldn't miss Christmas for anything. Well, if your name is George Valentine, you wouldn't either. Yes, by now you've learned enough about the man in the Santa Claus suit to know that his vast collection of friends and retainers are not exactly loyal to him. In fact, one of them has just murdered him.
26: Murder, George?
10: Well, there's no blood,
12: Angel. No marks on the back of his head under the cap. Don't touch
5: him, Mr. Keller. I'll do
12: that. Whatever you say. It wouldn't be surprising if he were murdered, I suppose. People all around him, always with him, and yet easily the most disliked man in the world.
26: You should know, Mr. Keller. I understand you gave him a car tonight as a gift.
12: I'd rather not
10: incriminate myself, if you don't mind. Well, I don't like to disturb the mask and whiskers, but...
26: George! Yeah.
5: His face.
6: It's not Mr. Wick at all.
26: It's the court jester, the fool. It's
6: Jukes who's been murdered. Poisoned. Look at his face. But where is Francis Xavier Wick?
10: But I saw Wick, I tell you, before he put on that ridiculous costume. Or rather, he had just part of it on. When was that? A half an hour earlier, I suppose. I don't know. It was before Mr. Frain got here. What
26: about the other guests? The the people who brought all those other presents? They'd gone.
6: They'd already left. Just who are you, Mr. Keller? What are you doing here? What? Good heavens, man. I'm a banker, but that doesn't have anything to do with it.
26: For some reason, you give huge gifts every Christmas to Mr. Wick. Just like Mr. Frain, like the others. Well, and stop
12: I... harping on it. It's a fact, that's all. I'm certainly not going to explain it. Why should I? I didn't
6: try to kill the man. Well, somebody who was left in the house must have... All right. But it's Jukes who is dead, not Wick. Uh, and you can't even tell me when they changed parts, when Jukes started playing Santa Claus. No,
10: no, what of it? Charity Dufresne told you where we all were, and now confirm it.
8: Mr. Valentine, Mr. Valentine.
6: Yeah, right here, Mrs. Wick.
8: The little
30: summer house, the studio, out where he does his all writing. All right,
6: come on, I'll get your breath. What's the matter?
30: I found you him. What? My husband. He's unconscious.
7: Oh, oh, leave me alone. I'm
5: fine, I tell you. Oh, I'm Dad. fine. I'm oh. fit as a grave digger's shovel. You oh, oh, twisted my ankle when I fell, that's yeah. all. Sit down. Now, stop pawing at me, Janet. You're my wife, not my secretary. Right, stop
6: talking, you two. The side door out there is open, and there's blood on the floor where you were. Blood is from my head very high
5: quality. (laughs) I fell because I was struck, and I was struck because the worm turned. That's why. The worm? Miss Brooks, all my life I've pampered myself by having a retainer. Someone night and day, like Janet here. Francis, please. I've never been a well man, and besides it amuses me to watch Lackey's work.
6: Buster, why don't you... It was Jukes who hit me, you cretin. Who else would it be? Oh, yeah, Jukes. Go on, go on. I was wearing a Santa Claus suit, as I recall.
5: Where is it? On him, you say. He called me out here to the studio. He knocked me out. A child could deduce that he took my suit. Now you wake me up,
9: saying he's dead.
5: Well, well, well. So be it. Oh, wretched, rash, intruding fool. Farewell. Thou wert taken for thy better. Oh, don't stare at me. I'm disappointed in him, that's all. But we shouldn't judge the worm just because he turned. The temptation was just too great, I suppose. There's over $100,000 worth of gifts in there under that Christmas tree. And a brand-new car outside to make a getaway in. Can you blame him for wanting to step into my shoes? Okay, okay, Mr. Wake. Two and two is four. He knocked you out intending to take your place so he could collect the
6: last couple of gifts and get by the servants on his way out.
26: Only who poured those drinks, George? I
30: didn't, I assure you. Jukes did. It must have been he. That's when I came into the house, and I was so upset because he wouldn't even speak to me. I thought it was you, Francis. He passed around drinks and wouldn't even speak to me.
4: Hmm. (laughs) And I suppose you wept
5: copious tears into your usual creme de mouth. Well, it's logical. He would have served drinks to cover
6: not talking.
30: And they were left standing. I remember that, too. He left them for quite a time to open a present. Anyone could have touched them. <laughs>
26: well, what's the matter with you? Oh,
30: I, I was thinking what beautiful story
5: it will all make. Particularly the ending. <laughs> <laughs> well, laugh out of the other side of your face, busty. Somebody wanted to kill you and didn't succeed. Exactly what I mean. That's the most fascinating part. Read my column
6: tomorrow, young man. Oh, I'll give you something to read. You too, Mrs. Wick. There were only three people who could have tampered with a drink. You, Mr. Keller, and Charity Dufain.
30: They both hate Francis. I'm sure either and one... And Keller could...
6: and Charity both agree they were together all that time. Oh, George. Yeah, that's right. You heard me. They gave each other alibis. Uh,
30: listen. That must be the police car coming. I'd better get over to the main house, to Janet,
6: George, George grab her. Why? Police will be here in a second. She won't go far. Oh, what on Besides, uh, I want to straighten this guy before they come.
5: Oh, you mean you're going to carry me back to the house? Good. I don't want
6: to miss any fun. And my ankle won't $100,000 worth of gifts from people who hate you. But it isn't blackmail because you give them gifts, too. And you make them play a farce like this Christmas in January. Mr. Valentine, I'm so pleased
5: that you figured me out. People are contemptible. I despise them. Oh,
6: yeah, famous people, rich people. You like to watch them suffer.
9: I know where their bodies
5: are buried. Keller, Charity, all of them. Blackmail? No. (laughs) I've never threatened anything. We just exchange gifts. And the most contemptible and amusing thing about people is their willingness to believe that I ever would write what I know about them. They're afraid. They never know. And so they really are... Are blackmailing themselves.
26: I think you must be the most horrible man who ever lived.
6: Skip it, Brooksy. Come on. He's cleared it up. Let's go. Well, Mr. Valentine. So long, Wick. Oh, Valentine, Wick, you're not going to leave me. Why not? Oh, because somebody still wants to kill you? What? Well, that doesn't bother you, does it? You were laughing about it a minute ago. Well,
9: ridiculous. Of course not. But now, see here, with this ankle. You're comfortable.
6: Go. Just relax. The police will get around to you later on, no maybe. No, you See
8: you time.
6: in the morning. Read my column for the last chapter. Uh, well, Brooksie, this is one case that I don't particularly care if I ever... What's
26: the matter, George? I mean, listen. Just the police car in the driveway, that's all.
6: Oh, I'm way, way wrong. That guy's quicker than I am. What? Wait, wait a minute.
26: Here. George, there's somebody... Oh, no.
6: All right, Mrs. Wick.
26: George, look out. She's got a gun. Drop that thing, lady. Drop.
6: That's better.
30: Leave me alone. You get out of my way. Going
6: back out there to that studio with a gun, huh?
30: He can't do things like that to people. He can't treat them. What?
6: You mean he can't treat you like that?
30: I don't care about me. I just look at her
6: eyes. Mrs. Wick. Mrs. Wick, listen to me. You're going out there because you think he killed Jukes. Isn't that right? You don't know how he could have done it, but somehow you think he must be responsible.
30: You said you felt the other two had alibis. And
6: if you knew that you didn't do it, then you assume that he has to be behind it, like he's behind everything else in the world, sticking in pins. Let
30: told of me. I've got to know oh, her- come
6: on, then. I'll take you there, without the gun. We'll wrap this up before anybody else gets hurt. on.
30: Francis, Georgie's on the floor. What's the matter with him? Perfectly me? all right, young lady. Francis, you're white as a sheep. Well, don't go pawing at me again. This stupid man running off.
5: I'm not stupid me.
6: anymore, Buster. But here, get up. Come on uh, now. now. You're all right. All right, one thing at a time. Jukes killed himself. What? Oh, George? the police will be there. There'll be all kinds of evidence. Fingerprints on the glass. You figured that out, too, didn't you, Wick? <laughs> Isn't that the story
5: you were going to write? We're laughing about Mr. Valentine, I shall write my friends in Scotland
6: Yard about no, you. No, no,
30: wait. <laughs> Why on earth would Jukes kill himself?
6: Mrs. Wick, you drink green creme de ma- What? Oh, yes, but... Jukes took over Santa Claus' beard in order to get away with his sack full of loot, right? He already slugged your husband here. Well, oh, how do you think he felt when you walked in the door?
26: George, I don't get it at all.
6: Mrs. Wick, it was only a matter of minutes before he knew you'd recognize he wasn't the right guy, despite the pillows and beard. So maybe the ex-pharmacist got a little desperate. You never drank your drink, by the way, did you? I remember you holding it. You
30: mean it was poison? You mean
7: he was... Jack, fine? will you let the man
6: talk? His syntax is execrable, but his luck It's all a guess, but it's a good one. The connoisseur here likes stromboese. Uh, like women, it should be strong to the senses, but uh, easy to see through. Oh, quote. But Jukes would know about that. Playing Wick, he'd make his own liqueur, Drambouille. But he left the drinks for a few minutes, you said. And the drinks were in by the Christmas tree.
26: George, what in the name of the world are you talking by about? By the
6: Christmas tree, Brooksy. And when he picked one up, he picked up the wrong drink. The grand de Moth meant for you, Mrs. Wick. Oh. We can check. We'll find out.
30: But how could he mistake a green
6: creme de menthe? I know, I know. Yeah, a is almost white. But there were only green lights in there on that Christmas tree. Don't you know what happens to anything green when it's matched by a green light? The color cancels out. It turns white. <laughs> Bravo, Mr. Valentine.
5: A very well-rounded story. White Christmas in January.
6: Yeah. And much to my regret, there's probably nothing I can hang on to you, Mr. Wick. All right, come on, Mrs. Wick. Oh, no, you don't, Janet. He doesn't have to order you around, you know, not anymore.
5: What? Janet.
6: Maybe he wouldn't have to pick on other
5: people if you could control him, the people he despises so much. Janet, Janet, come back here. Don't leave me. You know, he'd already figured
6: this crime out. So a few minutes ago, why did we find him so scared? Why? Why?
11: Look, Janet, would you do as I say? The
6: day? acid bath man who's had a lackey attend him night and day all his life. Always people, Janet, people. Janet, Janet, don't listen. To me. Haven't you ever wondered about that, Mrs. Wick? And why his Janet, hatred of people? Be. You've been his wife, but I'll bet I you have haven't even noticed. He never gave you a chance to. Janet. All you'd ever have to do to gain the upper hand is just walk away from Janet, him. Janet, come back here. Don't leave me. Come back.
30: I must come go back.
6: back. Look, he's a case. Can't be without Janet. people. Terrified of being alone. Janet, Remember that. Okay, Mrs. White, go on back. You can have him.
26: Oh, George, I don't envy her the job.
6: Yeah. Well, he's rounded out his own story, hasn't he? I Letting us see such a queer pair of clay feet. <laughs> well, he won't give Christmas parties anymore, but.
26: George, that color business. Hmm? I mean, well, it proved to be true and everything, but you're so unobservant generally. About... How did I
6: get it? You really want to know? Well, Brooksy, in there by the Christmas tree earlier, I, I happened to notice something, that's huh? all. Something about you. Me? Mm-hmm, yeah. And later on it clicked. The color of your eyes. What that light did to the blue in them.
26: Oh, George, really? Wow. I never see you noticing. Well, I, I,
5: do. I, do. I do. I like to look at you. Oh, do it quite often, as a matter of fact.
6: <laughs> Is that all right?
26: Oh, darling. You know something? Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to tell you that my eyes are really... Hazel. Yes.
10: The adventure of George Valentine is brought to you by Standard Oil Company of California on behalf of independent Chevron gas stations and standard stations throughout the West. Robert Bailey starred as George with Virginia Gregg as Brooksy. Let George Do It is written by David Victor and Jackson Gillis and directed by Don Clark. Larry Dobkin was heard as Wick, Lee Patrick as Janet, Shirley Mitchell as Charity, John Daner as the salesman and Ted DeCorsia as Keller.
4: 1951 episode of Let George Do It, titled Christmas in January. We certainly hope that a little bit of Christmas spirit and joy will carry over into your January and last throughout a happy and healthy new year. That adventure brings us almost to the end of the big broadcast tonight. We want to finish it by marking one more anniversary, and it's a relatively recent one. 20 years ago this week, on January 8th, PBS-premiered documentary filmmaker Ken Burns' 10-part series, Jazz. We're going to close our show with a tune he used to open his. Recorded in Chicago on November fourth, 1931, it's Louis Armstrong with Hoagie Carmichael's Stardust. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Again, wishing you a healthy and happy new year. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody.
27: I've wonderful.